Please, don't be alarmed. We're not going to harm anyone. We're mutants. We're not what you think. Across the planet, debate rages. Are mutants the next link in the evolutionary chain? They have been regarded with fear, suspicion, often hatred. There are forces in this world who believe that a war is coming. We're here to stay. The next move is yours. We'll be watching. Hang on to something. Welcome to Now Playing's X-Men Retrospective Series. Welcome to Mutant High. Part of the Now Playing Marvel Comic Movie Series. You talk pretty tough for a guy in a cape. Hosted by Jacob. They're right to see me. Stuart. I've seen evil, and I'm looking at it now. And Arnie. When I lose control, it feels good. Join us at NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for a new movie review. Who will you stand with, the humans or us? These reviews will contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Listener discretion is advised. Let's do this. Today we're discussing Dark Phoenix. Starring James McAvoy, Michael Fassbender, Jennifer Lawrence, Nicholas Holt, Sophie Turner, Ty Sheridan, Alexandra Shipp, and Jessica Chastain. Directed by Simon Kinberg. This is the now playing co-host who's all rage and pain, and it's all coming out in this show, Arnie. And Stuart. And this is Jacob, and I'm special because I'm pretty cool. <laughs> you are. And so is the X-Men franchise. I want to just say that when we think about now playing's history, this feels like a door is closing, right? The Fox X-Men universe last film. It feels like something ran out that door as it was closed. <laughs> Someone might have wanted to close it sooner. Be that as it may, I don't know that Fox ever had any real love for this franchise. I always felt like they underfunded them and pissed off the creative people. People were always leaving and mad. And Well, some of them raped little boys, and that's why they left. Well, Brian Singer's issues never came up for that film. It was only Bohemian Rhapsody. That was overlooked. It was known but overlooked for many years. Well, it's why he's not back here after the brouhaha around Apocalypse it was decided he would not be returning to the X-Men franchise. Sure. And I just want to say, this was the bright spot for me before there was an MCU. When we were reviewing all those terrible superhero movies that came out in the 80s and 90s, if you remember, I was a string of red arrows. Nothing was good. And I want to say I'm right. I don't hear a lot of like nostalgia now for Punisher War Game or whatever the hell that was. War Zone. Whatever. It doesn't matter because no one actually goes back and watches those films now that they know how good a superhero movie can be. But back in a time when superhero movies were bad, these were pretty good. No, these X-Men ones, I mean, coming out in 2000, this, besides Blade, I know Blade is now uh, seen as the grandfather of all the comic book films. But yeah, these X-Films were seen as pretty good for a genre that hadn't been established and had a shaky history. Eight out of the 12 movies I've given Green Arrows to. 11 out of the 12 movies I've given Green Arrows to. The only one that got a red arrow from me was Apocalypse. That was the one that pushed my goodwill too far. But <laughs> I was thinking, the X-Men franchise has been around for 20 years. No, no. I mean, I'm not forgetting Generation X. Well, yeah, recounting that. <laughs> yeah, come on. <laughs> come on, why not? It's part of it. And that's what I like about it, too, is it's been a bumpy ride. They haven't all felt cookie cutter in the way that a DC or MCU movie can, 
like, yeah, we've had the 90210 TV pilot Generation X. We've had R-rated raunch with Deadpool. Each Wolverine spinoff felt different, particularly Logan. And if we ever get to see New Mutants, that's apparently a horror movie. They played around with formula as they made all of these films. And that's not something we get with Marvel. They also focused more on just the debate. Not with Deadpool, maybe, but with the X-Men films. Yeah, is that debate is how strong do you go when you're pushing your movement? Are you trying to get equal rights? What's the right balance there? And that's what I found interesting with the X-Men films. The Marvel films are fun. I recommended a lot of those. I like, though, that there's debate and people are willing to talk and explore ideas in these films. To me, though, we're talking here like we are the ones standing around. The camera is a straight downward view. The rain is coming and we're all standing around the grave of the X-Men saying goodbye. We are. We are. Until they show up in Infinity War 7. But Disney has said Deadpool is a huge success. And if it's not broke, don't fix it. And it's R-rated, so that he's not going to go into the MCU. He's not going to go in the MCU, but work is happening on Deadpool 3. And Deadpool is part of this universe. We saw half this cast cameo in Deadpool 2. For half a second. I don't think people associate Deadpool with X-Men. My wife does not like these X-Men movies that she has seen, but she loves Deadpool. And when I go, Deadpool is an X-Men, she's like, oh, really? The casual fan that wants to get some laughs at an R-rated superhero flick, they're not putting the two together. Yeah, and, and I have the inverse opinion. For me, the best of the bunch has been the history-spanning origin stories that we've gotten most recently with Fassbender and McAvoy, starting with First Class, which I still rank as one of the top five best comic book movies ever made. I would agree with that. It has grown in its esteem since it opened, and I loved it when it opened. I rewatched all the X-Men movies leading up to this one, and that is my absolute hands-down favorite X-Men movie. So why aren't we excited about Dark Phoenix? This feels like a tax write-off. It's like, eh, I guess it's done. We'll put it out, and when it loses money, we'll write it off. I was surprised it was coming. Everybody's contract was up with Apocalypse. Nobody had to come back. Jennifer Lawrence, she didn't have to come back. I thought she was ecstatic because she's like, I'm out of this franchise finally. She was during Apocalypse. Wow, she willingly came back. Yes, although in an interview with Entertainment Weekly recently, I get to use the podcast 1F-bomb, she said she fucked herself and that's why she came back. I'll talk about it. I do feel like she hasn't had much of a career. Like she was on a high trajectory. I don't know what she's done lately though. It does feel like since Apocalypse, she has not had a huge hit. She did Passengers, which people didn't really like and was a disappointment. Mother, which was very controversial and never meant to be a commercial hit. And Red Sparrow, which wasn't a commercial hit. Enjoy. Yeah, it doesn't feel like any of those took off. So I thought it was over. Obviously, none of us could foresee the mouse eating the fox at that point. I thought it was over, but no. They ended up going with Simon Kinberg, who has been with the franchise since he was hired to write X3, The Last Stand. That was his first X-Men film. Oh, that's why this feels so similar. Yeah, he gets a second crack at it, which is interesting. I mean, I got to see this guy at my very first Comic-Con. Back in July 2006, he was there on a panel 
oddly enough, with the director of Donnie Darko, Richard Kelly, basically shit-talking Hollywood about how <laughs> it was so hard to get their visions made in a studio system. And Kenberg was bracing for it. He knew that Last Stand, despite our three green arrows, I think the popular opinion is that movie shit the bed. And he knew that there was a lot of hate being directed at him for having contributed to the screenplay. He gave the impression that there was a lot of things that he would have liked to have done if he had had more creative control. How interesting that he essentially gets to remake it as the only creative voice. Not only is he the only one credited with the script, he is the director his first time behind the camera. Well, not quite his first time. Apparently, Bohemian Rhapsody wasn't the first time Brian Singer stormed off the set. It happened in Days of Future Past, and it happened a lot more in Apocalypse. And whenever Brian Singer was not to be found, it was Kinberg who stepped up and got behind the camera and directed some of those films. But this time, they took off the training wheels. He's the only director. And... I was nervous about that. I've seen it happen before. David Goyer wrote two Blade films before he got in the director's chair for Blade 3. Don Mancini wrote a number of Child's Play films before he did Seed of Chucky as director. So it is a little nerve-wracking the times that the writers decide they're going to step up. This is where Jennifer Lawrence screwed herself, though, is because she said she would only return if Kinberg directed. She'd had a good relationship with him on the previous film. And I don't know if she was bluffing, but she said to Kinberg, if you do it, I'll come back. And then Kinberg did it. And she's like, oh, shit, I have to wear the makeup again. <laughs> but she and Fassbender and McAvoy and Holt, they all signed up for one film. No extended contracts on this one. One and done. I imagine that would be why Fox would give him the go. If Lawrence, who is this franchise's biggest star, glass and split notwithstanding for McAvoy, if Jennifer Lawrence says, you'll get my name back on the poster if you hire this guy to direct and they were, he's been around and proven reliable for over a decade, yeah, give this guy the chance. I also heard that Fassbender didn't want to come back, but then what has he done lately? Assassin's Creed and the Snowman? I guess he needs a hit. It felt to me like when I watched First Class, I saw a cast that I thought was on the rise. Nicholas Holt, yes. Fassbender, who was going to be huge. and just He isn't a really good actor, but the biggest things he's done as far as box office is like Alien Covenant recently. And then McAvoy, who I've always thought was a really good actor. And yeah, he did have the M. Night hits. But other than the M. Night stuff, what has he done? He's worked. I see him in things, but... It feels like none of these people, including at this point Jennifer Lawrence, have lived up to the promise of their careers. Jennifer Lawrence was the one who rose as high as I thought she would, but she fell fast. Yeah, it feels like Hugh Jackman's the only one that got out of this, and he was in the original X-Men as well, so he already had his stardom. And this is the first movie of the X-Men series to not have a frame of Jackman. But in chronological order, this does come before Logan, so he, he's still running around somewhere. Are we putting this in order? Because what I thought we were building up to was the original 2000 Brian Singer movie. We were trying to say that the cast that we've been accumulating will eventually do the things that Halle Berry and Hugh Jackman and all the others are going to do. 
there's no way because Jay McAvoy is going to look like Patrick Stewart in eight years. This yeah. is 92. This film is set in. Michael Fassbender is going to look like Ian McKellen in eight years. That was what they said they were building to. That is what I thought they would be doing with this movie. Instead, they're going to retell the Dark Phoenix storyline, something that is not out of continuity because of Days of Future Past. It absolutely is because Famke Jensen appeared at the end of Days of Future Past alive and well. But that was an alternate dimension that they had fixed by not creating Sentinels. Right, which means Dark Phoenix never happened. But it still doesn't mean that everything else that we saw in an X-Men movie isn't part of the same timeline. But a lot of it isn't. Although I still can't understand why Magneto aged so poorly in the eight years from 92 to 2000. He became an 80-year-old man. Anything that happened before Days of Future Past in the future cannot be taken as guaranteed. Everything from the years 2000's X-Men through 2000, what is it, 25's Days of Future Past future scenes, all has been rewritten. I did not take... First class to be in a different universe than those films, particularly since they brought those two casts together in one film. Well, they're just doing what they did with like the 2009 Trek film where they're saying everything you saw happened at one point in a timeline, but then Spock went back in time and altered it. And so everything happened differently. And I think that's what they're saying with the days of future past is now anything could happen. But even before that, Continuity has never been a strong suit for the X-Men series. First Class has a number of incongruities with the 2000 X-Men film. I don't want to sit here and have a continuity debate. What I'm trying to say, in short, I thought we were going to get a different story. I thought we were going to build to something that would link us to the old character. Something that would be so traumatic that it would make you look like Patrick Stewart <laughs> in eight years. To go back to Dark Phoenix, again, I heard Kenberg say that he wanted to correct that. But was that something that anybody else wanted to see? I feel like this was his passion project. Him and Singer. Singer did Days of Future Past with the intent of writing X3 out of continuity, hence the ending we got. He was mad of killing all of his characters. Brett Ratner came in and everybody died. Singer, when he returned with Days of Future Past, was like, no, I want my people to still be alive. And so that's why he did what he did. I have no idea what they were expecting with this. What Kinberg has said is this was viewed long before the Disney buyout as the end of an era. This was a capper, and whatever they did next, because of the success of Logan and the success of Deadpool, they were going to be bold and be different and not continue this team and not continue these types of stories. I almost wonder if they were looking at maybe a Fassbender, McAvoy solo film the way this one ends. Well, talking about the way this one ends... Was there a different ending? I know there was a bunch of reshoots. This was supposed to come out last year. Things changed. Do we know if this was supposed to tie in better? Do we know what was changed? Kinberg has talked a lot about it. This was supposed to come out November 2nd, 2018. And then test screenings did not like the end. And Kinberg said that a film came out that was very similar to his end. And he felt like they'd be accused of aping that film. So they wanted to reshoot. They couldn't get the people back together until September 2018. So it got pushed to February 14th, 2019. And then they needed extra time for post-production. And when Gambit was canceled, they gave this film the Gambit slot 
because they already had IMAX screens and things reserved for Gambit. So the reason I was able to see this in IMAX is because theaters were expecting to show Gambit here. Yeah, I was surprised it was in IMAX because I don't feel like they really pushed this film. There wasn't a whole lot of marketing, it feels like. Well, not here. When they released the first trailer, it got a dismal 8 million views on YouTube, you know, compared to Endgame, which broke records. But that same trailer got 44 million views in 24 hours in China. And so they decided they're kind of dumping this in the U.S. All of their promotions, all of their release plans are all focused on Chinese dollars. Yeah, I feel like some of why I may not be excited about this, even though, I again, I'm saying this is one of my favorite, I've enjoyed all of them, is that, yeah, the marketing has been bad, but also... The idea of redoing Dark Phoenix felt redundant to me. And then I went back and read the source material and allow me to slaughter this sacred cow. Look, I, everyone, I warned Stuart about this. That is horrible. (laughs) It is a horrible, horrible, horrible comic. Now, admittedly, maybe I have my expectations out of whack. I had never read an X-Men comic before, but because we're reviewing the anime of Akira this Friday... I had gone back and relived that manga and so thoroughly enjoyed it. I'm like, this is just incredible. And this Dark Phoenix storyline feels so similar. I wonder what Marvel's take on it. I often call Akira the Japan answer to the X-Men. Well, this doesn't even begin to touch what Akira did. It's a bad soap opera. First and foremost, (laughs) Jean Grey is barely in it. And when she is, she's having some kind of imaginary sex fantasy in the 18th century with the Hellfire Club. (laughs) It's mostly about going to discos and then they bring in space aliens <laughs> for a battle that was never shown. She apparently flew into space and caused a ruckus. And now we're, it's bringing down the scroll or the Krell or something on us. She kills a whole planet of people. She sucks up the energy from a star and that wipes out a planet. Mass genocide. I was surprised at how disjointed it was and just badly written. Chris Claremont is some genius writer. He wrote X-Men for like 20, 30 years or something, but I agree, Stuart. I do not like Chris Claremont. I know a lot of people love him, but man, he puts a lot of words in those bubbles and it is just too much for me. That's exactly it. I mean, the characters were practically crushed to the floor because the dialogue bubbles are that long and there's no need for it. You read Akira and they're just pages and pages of beautiful destruction. And this is just all words and none of them are poetic. Let me be the dissenting voice here. I know you're more sympathetic, Arnie. You give the counterpoint. Remember, I wasn't floored by Watchmen when I read it. I think a lot of this is revolutionary for the time it came out. And the Dark Phoenix saga is 40 years old. But Jean Grey was in the very first issue of X-Men when she was a telekinetic called Marvel Girl. And Chris Claremont came in and created drama and would kill off characters. It was basically the Game of Thrones of comic books of its time. You never knew who would live, who would die, who would turn evil. So Ratner's instinct may not have been wrong. No, I don't think it entirely was. The problem was the studio said they wanted the gifted story and Kinberg and Ratner wanted to do the Dark Phoenix story. So Dark Phoenix became a subplot instead of the plot. Mm -hmm. And they were trying to go off of Joss Whedon's recent gifted comic arc that was a big success. But if you read these at the time and you were into X-Men and you'd seen these characters come and 
You know, they introduced a character just to kill him in, like, the third issue so that you could know all bets were off with these people, and you'd not really seen superhero deaths before like that. That Jean Grey turned evil, became superpowered, and then it ended with her death? That is shocking to a character that people had had... 26-year history with. I can understand if you did. I'm just saying as someone that never read an X-Men comic and heard that this was great writing, it's not great writing. It's poor writing. No, it's not an entry point to the X-Men series is the thing. But no. I do like Claremont's storytelling. I agree. He gets a little verbose. But when you deal with the Claremont era of X-Men, every arc that's iconic comes from Claremont. Yeah, no, I agree. Like, Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, when they created X-Men, that was not a hit like Spider-Man and Fantastic Four. It kind of went away, and Chris Claremont is the one who made it popular, and it has stuck really since the 70s when he came on there. But I've said before, like, here's my bias. I was never a huge X-Men fan. Like, I liked Wolverine. There'd be individual X-Men that I liked. I never liked reading the books. It was just, it felt like its own superhero universe. It's so big and so many characters. It was hard to just get into. I don't like when X-Men go to space, which is a big part of Dark Phoenix. And yeah, Chris Claremont, I'm not into his writing, but that's, I'm like, oh no, we're getting space X-Men in this one. Uh, it doesn't really go there. Like I felt like there was going to be a whole lot more space and yeah, they keep this one pretty grounded. That was the big shock to me, how much more this is like the last stand than like that Dark Phoenix saga comic. And the entire original ending that test screenings didn't like was in space. Oh, okay. See, and I felt like when I read the comic, the reason why it went into space was it was being written in the late 70s and Star Wars was the thing and it was just them grasping on trend. The story didn't need to go there. And again, I just didn't feel like Jean Grey was an important character. She was a prop and it was all about the Hellfire Club and Wolverine and basically any other X-Men other than Dark Phoenix. She was a poorly constructed villain or hero. I couldn't make anything out of it. So if they're going to go back to this, my sense is they're going to have to start from ground zero. They're going to have to create a whole new thing because I wouldn't want to see the comic book brought to life on screen. That would be a bad movie. You would have to do it like Marvel's Cinematic Universe and you couldn't bring it into this X-Men universe. I firmly believe 10 years from now, now playing, we'll be discussing the Dark Phoenix saga as told in the Marvel Cinematic Universe that is much truer to the comic, but still adapting the comic for modern times. I made that joke to my wife. This is like getting Spider-Man's origin every couple of years. She doesn't understand all the mechanics with Fox and Disney. I'm like, well, no, now these characters, they're not going away. They're just going to be in the Marvel movies now. So again, Avengers 27, we'll get this story again. And despite all these misgivings, I was still kind of hopeful. This is still one of the films of the summer I was most anxious to see because of that goodwill. I had my own little marathon. I rewatched First Class, Days of Future Past, Apocalypse, was really interesting interested in Apocalypse because I gave that a green light and I didn't feel good about it. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, did I really think that was a good movie? I'm going to stand by my very mild recommend. It is not a very well shaped movie. It is a bunch of storylines thrown in a bag, shook up and vomited on screen. It is poorly constructed, but I do think it has some very charming bits in it. There are many things that I liked and the fact that it's this garbled mess I kind of forgive it. You tend to give a pass to things when there's goodwill. And the goodwill that had been built up by the previous two movies allows me to say, yeah, it's not the worst thing in the world. 
It's not the worst thing in the world. It's certainly not the worst comic book movie. I still say, even to preview my thoughts on Dark Phoenix, it is the worst X-Men film ever made. Rewatching it, some of it is laughable. I do like some of the storylines. I like what they did with the Magneto character and his family and all of that. But once it goes to Auschwitz, it goes to hell. <laughs> yeah, that is the film. That was my wife's first X-Men film and made her never want to see an X-Men film again. She calls it X-Men Apocalyptic Waste of Time. Maybe I'd still kind of like it if I watched it again, but I feel like I am the skeptic here. I didn't rewatch anything for this because I liked X-Men First Class. I agree. That is either that or Logan. Those are the top of these X-Men films. For the X-Men group films, First Class is the best one. And I wanted to see that group. And then that Brian Singer, ugh. I'm not a sentimental person. So the fact that he wanted to restore his X-Men universe just really kind of turned me against these generation films, as I call them. And this one, I'm like, oh, here's another one. They've kind of ruined what they set up with First Class. And okay, I'll go in and see it. But I wasn't excited, but I, I wasn't expecting it to be the worst thing in the world. But yeah, just not hyped for it. And I'll be with Stuart. I wasn't excited for this film. In fact, I forgot it was coming out this week. There's so many theatrical releases we're doing with Men in Black next week and everything, that Dark Phoenix got lost in the shuffle. It got pushed so many times and reshot endings. I was nervous for it, and I didn't think the trailers looked all that good, and I was not a fan of Sophie Turner. She was, in my mind, the worst part, her Sansa of Game of Thrones, and I didn't like her as Jean Grey in the last film, so I went in with low expectations. But I did see this movie twice, both times at IMAX. I went to the opening fan event because I got a keychain. <laughs> yeah, you got two of them because I gave you mine. <laughs> it, the fan event did have a title card at the beginning. You're among the first to see Dark Phoenix. Please tweet about it. Here <laughs> are our hashtags. <laughs> please, please give us some press because we don't have no press here in America. <laughs> and then I went back the next day to a matinee that's the fan screening was pretty full, not every seat, but I'd say it was mostly a sellout. But then the next day when I went to the 430 IMAX, I had my choice of seats. I could walk in and sit almost anywhere. Everyone was kind of clustered in the middle, but I'd say in a 200 seat theater, 30 of us. My theater, I went, saw this about 7 o'clock Friday night. It was the last day of school for L.A. County, so it, it seemed like a pretty full theater. Like, there's kids and people of all ages there. It wasn't sold out, but three-quarters full. Not enough, though. I mean, we are recording this before the weekend is done. I'm hearing the numbers are very low. They're now saying less than 40 million opening, which is, for a franchise film like this, a dismal fall. It was projected to do 50 to 60. The studio was saying that they were putting out 40 to 50. Based on Friday estimates, it's not even going to hit 40. Yeah. And when I went to the theater the second time, it was full of kids. I was like, why are all these young teenagers here for X? They all went to Secret Life of Pets 2, which I forgot was out this weekend. <laughs> I was alone in X-Men. But this movie is projected to beat Secret Life of Pets 2 in its 150 million global opening. Okay. I mean, I have no dog, no pun intended, in that race. I love pugs, but there's nothing that could get me to see any Secret Life of Pets. The first one was okay until it had a plot. I'm not going anywhere near it. But let's get near this. Arnie, give them the plot for Dark Phoenix. It's 1992. The X-Men are global icons after saving the Earth from Apocalypse. 
and numerous other heroics in the years between. The President of the United States even has an X-Phone that will get James McAvoy's Professor Charles Xavier to scramble his X-Men and assist with any national emergency. And one such emergency is when the Space Shuttle Endeavor launches, but a space anomaly causes excessive heat and the Space Shuttle loses all systems. Professor X sends the X-Men on their first space mission. The crew is Speedster Quicksilver, Peter Maximoff, played by Evan Peters, Cyclops Scott Summers, who can shoot lasers from his eyes, played by Ty Sheridan, teleporting blue demon-looking Nightcrawler Kurt Wagner, played by Cody Smith-McPhee, weather-controlling Storm Aurora Monroe, played by Alexandra Ship. Psychic Telekinetic Jean Grey, played by Sophie Turner. Team Leader, Shapeshifting Mystique, also known as Raven, played by Jennifer Lawrence. And Blue Smart Guy Beast Hank McCoy, who built their space jet, played by Nicholas Holt. They rescue the astronauts, but Jean Grey is unable to escape the shuttle before the space wave hits, and she absorbs all of it into her body. Despite floating in space, she seems unharmed when the crew returns to Earth, but this force amplified her powers. First, she starts to remember things from her childhood that Professor X had repressed, such as Jean accidentally killed her mother using her powers and was abandoned by her father. And at times, Jean loses control, and in one such instance, she, maybe accidentally, kills Mystique. For help, she goes to Eric Lenscher, Magneto, played by Michael Fassbender. Magneto has built a commune safe haven for mutants, and he realizes Jean is dangerous, so he expels her. But when Beast comes to Magneto and says Jean killed Raven, Magneto and Beast team up to kill Jean. Meanwhile, Professor X and Cyclops believe Jean can be saved, so they team up with Storm and Nightcrawler to rescue her. But there's a third party involved. A shape-shifting alien race called the Dabari had been following the Space Force ever since it destroyed their entire planet. Dabari leader Vux shapeshifts into a woman played by Jessica Chastain and tries to groom Jean. Vux hopes Jean can harness her power and help repopulate the Dabari so they can kill all humans and take over the Earth. Magneto and Xavier track Jean to a house by Central Park. Somehow the Dabari have a really big budget. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, in the 90s, New York, Manhattan wasn't the thing it is now. You could get that real estate. I still remember that short-lived soap opera Central Park West about all the rich young people in New York, the yuppies. But outside that house, the two factions fight over whether to kill or save Gene. But it's moot. Gene is too powerful for either Magneto or Xavier. But Xavier does get through to the old Gene in the new Gene's mind. And Gene doesn't want her powers, so she starts to transfer the Phoenix Force to Vux. The transference is interrupted when a military group captures all the mutants, but Vux and Dabari escape. On a prisoner train, the X-Men are held powerless, and the Dabari launch a final attack so Vux can take the power. There's another big fight as the mutants fight off the Dabari, and finally Jean wakes up and is the only one who can destroy Vux, but in doing so, Jean evolves into the pure energy and flies off into space. Due to his failures with Jean, Professor X retires from the school, now renamed the Jean Grey School for the Gifted, and run by Beast. And Charles and Magneto play one final game of chess in Paris, as credits roll. But before credits start, we got that 20th Century Fox logo and the full fanfare. You know, they used to have the short fanfare for most movies, 
and the big fanfare for event movies. And when I'd hear the full fanfare, I would just, in my mind, because I watched it so many... That means you're going to see Star Wars. Yes, I would just immediately go into Star Wars. I'm watching it here. This might be the last time we ever see this. Yeah. And in the last couple movies, they'd even taken the final notes and then played the da-da-da-da-da X-Men theme over it. But here, they leave the music untouched. They linger on a fiery X. But this is... Goodbye to Fox? No, I take this to mean that Disney did not want to take any credit for what's up on screen. They're like, <laughs> you know what? We had no hand in this. We want you to feel like Fox did this to you, not us. It did have the Marvel flip logo that they give for films like Venom. And yeah, th- turning the page. That was exactly all that sound of page turning. I'm like, yep, that's exactly what they want to do. Yeah, but they've all had that. And there's all this whispering, too, on the soundtrack. Wow, wow, wow. Reboot, 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 reboot. (laughs) I do want to point out, legally, conspiracy theory all you want, but by law, Disney could not have any discussion with or say in Fox proceedings until the final contracts were signed, and those were signed just like a month and a half ago, which is too late to influence this film in any way. Mm, Legally speaking, there's other ways to get your point across. This film was locked down. It was done early and under budget for a change. Simon Kinberg didn't even spend all the money he had, which is why they were like, okay, sure, spend $10 million on reshoots. We're still coming in cheap. Yeah, I'm not here to say that Disney did the entire hit job. Fox has always treated X-Men bad. And when it has been successful, it's because the directors and the cast have rallied and made it better than the tight deadlines and cut budgets would have allowed for. But we open in 1975, and, you know, it looks on the calendar like a good date to pick. It's a couple of years after Days of Future Past and significantly before Apocalypse. We saw Jean Grey was an established student, late teens or 20s. So we need to be well before that. But 75 is also a big year for the X-Men. The X-Men had gone out of print or really just printed reruns for a while. In 1975 is the year Chris Claremont took over the X-Men. It's also the year that they changed the X-Men lineup with Giant Size X-Men number one. And so you were introduced to Banshee and Wolverine, Havoc, Nightcrawler, Colossus, Storm... And so we're in 1975 with Jean Grey and her parents. We kind of saw this in X3, right? (laughs) The young Jean Grey scenes. We saw a lot of this in X3. Although this scenario is different. In X3, she just lived in suburbia, a place that did not understand her power. And she was whisked away by two mutants. Here, she is going to be orphaned, so we think because she doesn't like what's playing on the radio. The parents want to hear Glenn Campbell by the time I get to Phoenix. Ha ha. And she would rather go with Werewolves of London. Yeah, but Werewolves of London didn't even come out for three more years. Is that true? She's magic. She created it in her mind and put it on the radio. She got the power. Yeah, her Phoenix Force got radio waves from the future. Future. 
Sure. And it's true. Fighting over the radio is an age-old battle between parent and child. I remember many a road trip where I insisted. Oh, there was no fighting. We didn't get a voice in it. It was the soundtrack to whatever, you know, Phantom of the Opera or Les Miserables or... If my dad was in the car, there was no say. We were listening to classical opera. Yeah, my dad did that too. (laughs) And if my mom was in the car, she decided that there were going to be enough fights about other things that she'd let us decide. And then the children just fought amongst themselves over what to listen to. Thank God the Walkman came out and we could all just listen to our own music. All I'm saying is I understand this eight-year-old girl's pain when she says, quiet. Okay, yeah, it causes a car accident, but at least it stops the Glen Campbell. <laughs> you know what I noticed on the second showing, though, is she yells, be quiet, be quiet, be quiet. And the mother and father turn around to be like, what's going on with our daughter? But that last be quiet... Her mother, her eyes close and she slumps. I don't know if Jean killed her mother or just made her pass out or... I saw the dad moving at the end after they get in this horrific car accident. I'm like, uh, is he going to live and give her up or is that just like a few twitches before he dies? It's pretty obvious that his head and his hand are moving, whereas the mother, her eyes opened during the crash, even though she was asleep before it. She is completely dead. She's got slashes on her face. Jean protected only herself. And just like instinctively, she has zero injuries. We get the scene of her like erecting a force field and the glass can't touch her. Yeah, you're saying she protected herself. I don't think she intentionally wanted to hurt her mom. I Again, I think they're setting up and they set up with some voiceover, you know, what is fate and what is the power with blah, 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 all this stuff. Blah, blah, yes. blah <laughs> is right. Boy, all the dialogue in this is really bad. Yeah, but it got the feeling that she just has this power and she's a child. I think they say she was eight years old when this accident happened. She can't control it. Again, I think it's instinctual, that force field and everything. And this is where I start to smell the lack of money, too. Like, they veered into another lane of traffic and hit a truck, and when they cut to the wide shot, it's just one car. Like, the truck kept driving. (laughs) It didn't even stop to see what happened. Like, no, we're not going to pay to have another truck on set. We're just filming as is. This is good enough. Well, I do think focusing on the dead parents is the right way to go instead of focusing on some irate truck driver. In a master shot where you collide with another vehicle, everyone wants to know what happened to the other vehicle. I will say this throughout the film. I'm like, oh, this feels like it's just for TV. Like, oh, let's make something an exclusive for Disney Plus, And here's the film for it. It never had that cinematic blockbuster summer superhero movie feel to me. It felt very toned down and almost like it was, again, made for television. They try to use sound effects. Like, there are many scenes where they're showing streets or neighborhoods, and you hear dogs barking, you hear, like, traffic and thing. but there's no extras in the shot. There are no people there. It is a sparsely underpopulated film. I also feel like the look of this film just isn't great. I don't know whether to blame the cinematographer or the director. There's a lot and I mean a lot, of extreme close-ups with depth of field so shallow that the actors move their head just a minute amount, and there are scenes in this film that are out of focus. There's scenes of J-Law where I thought it was a still with voiceover. It's so close on her face. I'm like, is she even moving? Is this even a motion picture at this point? I thought that was intentional. I thought they were trying to say we're getting closer than you've ever been to the characters. Because you're right. There are many times where you're only getting 
part of their face and only so, like the eye is in focus. Yeah, I never realized how many blue X-Men there were until this film because you get so many close-ups and I think you got three blue people. Yeah, Marjorie actually asked me if there was a printing reason why there are so many blue people in <laughs> X-Men and I had no answer for her. I was like, you're right, there are a lot of blue people. I think blue signifies the true mutant like the one that cannot hide even toad can like put on a hoodie and probably pass but when you're blue everyone knows that you're different and playing with stigma has been the issue and, and it is the issue for Jean that she is now stigmatized for having some role in her parents death she didn't want them dead but she certainly out of anger and being a child and not controlling her power caused it to happen it wouldn't have happened otherwise. That is why she becomes a candidate for Xavier's School for the Gifted. He comes rolling in here, not bald yet. He's still got his 70s locks. He wouldn't lose them till Apocalypse. Mm-hmm. Is that when he was doing the heroin to, so he could walk again? Well, that was the beginning of Days of Future Past. Oh, but, okay. <laughs> but yeah, you forget how late in the game that the baldness comes. She asks if her parents are dead. Xavier says yes. On the second watching, I do notice McAvoy plays that scene a little bit. He looks away and fumbles a little bit. I took that the first time I saw it as being uncomfortable because you hear the doctors like, who's going to tell her? And so I thought it was just he was uncomfortable saying they were dead. But no, we later find out he's lying and the dad is alive. And We're going to get this wonderful sarcasm off pen metaphor where she thinks that special means weird or crazy. And he's like, I'm going to give you a pen. You can draw something with this pen or you can stab someone with this pen. Either way, it's your gift and you choose what to do with it. And Stuart's having PTSD because he remembers being at Comic-Con and watching one guy behind him (laughs) stab another. See, it's true. You can use it as a weapon. It, It was a pencil, but I'm like, yep, I remember all too well, X, how that can be used as a weapon. Yeah, it, maybe it's a little clunky because it's a pen. You know, the pen is mightier than the swords. I like the metaphor that, yeah, these powers aren't inherently good or bad because that's kind of been the whole thing with the X-Men is the government's always like, bad, 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 bad. And Xavier's always trying to do good, 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 good. And then Magneto's always screwing that up. You know, you look at technology today or people that get into the gun debate. It's just a thing. It's just an object. And it depends on the user if there's good or bad attached to that. And here's a big difference between Last Stand and Dark Phoenix. In Last Stand, X knew, even in this moment, this was the most powerful mutant that ever existed. And that he needed to put a mind screw on her so that she did not become fully fledged. Yes, he's mentoring her and trying to have her develop her powers, but only to a point. But she always had them. Here, because they are going to have a space storyline and they want to be a little bit more true to the original comic, she's not going to really become Phoenix until we jump to 1992. Yeah, but she became Phoenix in Apocalypse. Remember that ending where she like became a big fiery bird and killed Apocalypse? I mean, you already have said by your own admission, they do not follow continuity in these movies. I know, it just bugs me a little bit. It also bugs me that Charles feels this little girl who seems to be a little maladjusted, but I can't imagine is the biggest problem child in his school, nor the most powerful student in his school. He decides to block from her memory that she was the cause of her parents' car accident. That seems like something she 
should learn from and grow from. They're going to try to make this into some gaslighting parable, but it doesn't feel earned. Again, I don't think any of this is Oscar-worthy performance. I'm getting a different vibe than I do from those Marvel films, and I'm okay with that. I want that. And yeah, when you get this whole gaslighting thing, it was interesting because took the kids. Again, it was the last day of school. Here's a treat. You get to see an X-Men film. I don't know. They probably wanted to see Secret Life of Pets, but nope, this is the film I got to go see. <laughs> but like my eight-year-old turned to me, and she's like, oh, he's like this kid I know at school that pretends to be nice, but they really have these dark secrets and they do mean things to you after they become your friend. So that meant a lot that like she saw real life connections there. And I, I like that. Yeah, Xavier, he really doesn't look great in this film, but I they play with those grays and I appreciate that with the X-Men films. And Arnie, I remember you saying that specifically that you never liked Professor X in the comic, that you called him dickish, I think was your word, <laughs> because he did have an arrogance about him. And that has never come through in Patrick Stewart or previously in McAvoy's performance. He's actually been, you know, maybe a cad flirted with women, but for the most part, very charming and very genuine. I never have doubted his intent about what he wanted to do for mutants or with mutants. And I don't doubt it here. He, the entire time, feels he's doing what's best for Gene. But I just don't think that the Gene we see as a child is one that needs to be locked away in her mind the way that they did justify it in X3. What I'm saying is X3 did childhood Gene better. Regardless, we don't spend any more time here than that. 1992, May, the launch of Endeavor. Also the launch of the X-Men animated series. That's the only reason I feel like they picked that year. Yeah, that was a big comeback year for the X-Men. This doesn't feel like a period piece at all. No, I sat through all those credits at the end because I'm like, ah, oh, are they going to do a post credit scene? There isn't, so you don't have to sit through it, everyone. But yeah, I noticed a lot when you get to the music. I'm like, I don't remember, I don't know, maybe I just missed Queen in the movie. There seemed to be a lot of music I just don't even remember hearing. I'm like, maybe that was in some cut of the film and it's gone now. But yeah, comparing this to, and there's a lot of comparisons to make to Captain Marvel, this does not feel 90s, where that one, they went out of their way to make it feel very 90s. I do think Queen was a song that played as a blip on the radio between the Phoenix song and the Werewolves of London. They had a couple other songs. Okay, so when they're just scanning through the station super quick. Yeah, and that was 1975. In 1992, yeah. I agree with you. One of the things I've really enjoyed about this new trilogy, now quadrilogy, is that, yeah, First Class was like a Cold War Bond film. Like, it captured the 60s. Days of Future Past captured the conspiracy mentality of the 70s. Apocalypse captured that 80s kitsch in the Cold War arms race. They really did encapsulate, sometimes broadly, but that's okay. It's a big Hollywood flashy movie. They always make a point of trying to say something about the times. And this movie, if it's commenting about the times, it's coming about our times right now. It's commenting on Me Too and what we feel about male privileged power. It's not saying much about what I remember. And I have very solid memories about the 1990s. Yeah, 1992 is the year I graduated high school. I remember everything about it. I remember the music. I was looking forward to a Captain Marvel-like revisiting of that year. The other thing is the previous movies have all dealt in reality. We saw footage of J. JFK in the 60s one. We saw a lookalike of Nixon in the 70s one. Here, that guy is not Bush. That guy is not Clinton. <laughs> that guy is Brian Darcy James, and I don't know who that is. 
Yeah, I think we do get some stock footage of Endeavor. This is the only thing that is specific to 1992, and they get it wrong. That flew 25 missions. You can now go to the California Science Center. I highly recommend it. I actually cried when I saw the actual thing. They do a beautiful job of showing you that shuttle's whole mission. It's a part of American history we should be proud of. To say that on its first mission, it blew up or got hit by a solar flare, you know, you want to have the Cuban Missile Crisis. You want to mix fact and fiction so that the mutants have some participation. They've done that through all these films. Sure. They did it with Three Mile Island. They did it with the Holocaust. Did Magneto really kill JFK? The magic bullet theory. Yeah, all of that, <laughs> again, it makes it more fun. But what it makes you think about is the Challenger explosion, which was 1986, and it's confusing times. And again, where is the 1990s? Wasn't there one in the 90s where, like, the tiles fell off and it blew up? as it was coming back into our atmosphere. It wasn't in 92, though. No, it was more like the early 2000s. Columbia. Oh, okay. My point is, is that they've concocted something to get them out into space at a time when space really wasn't where people were thinking about. I don't remember in the 90s, after the Cold War, the rush to put money in the space program went away. Like, NASA became an underfunded joke. Yeah, I remember seeing launches. Again, when I was in Florida, I saw a space shuttle take off at a great distance, and I remember just, it was the news. You'd have the camera up there with the astronaut, and you'd see the landings every day. You know, I was watching the news, and you'd see the liftoffs, you'd see the landings. I knew it was happening, but I didn't pay it any attention. It doesn't bother me that they're going to blow up Endeavor for this movie, and it didn't blow up in real life. Nobody's going to die on it. It didn't blow up during launch or re-entry. It's its own story here, and I'm okay with this opening. I do like the fact that Beast is the one who created this X-Jet, and he's like, uh, this can't go to space. This will not go to space. And Professor X is like, you're going to space. <laughs> yeah, why would anyone think an airplane should go into outer space? Like, that's totally different mechanics involved there. I wouldn't... Well, that, like the SR-71 Blackbird, which I think this is modeled after, it could go super high. And again, you don't realize how high our atmosphere goes, but you could go where it's like all dark, and we would call it space. Okay, let's just go with it because we want an exciting opening that establishes space aliens and solar flares and what have you. And it also, as you point out, it establishes the idea early that is Charles wrong? Is Charles wrong to want to try to do something that nobody thinks should be done? In the history of movies, usually when a man decides to do something risky that everyone else thinks is a bad idea, he proves to be the hero. He's the guy that defies the odds, and we love him for that. Now, it does seem like the trend is to depict male bravado as dangerously impulsive, and that a cautious female approach is more sensible. You can see that play out very dramatically in Last Jedi. And so, how do we feel about the fact that Charles says go when everyone else says no? We don't see everyone else say no. Beast says no, and Mystique seems to have some misgivings about being on set at all. But <laughs> when the president calls is when Beast does it. The president says, help us. That's what gets Beast to say yes. I feel that if the jet really couldn't do it, Beast would not be like, okay, the president called. Let's all go kill ourselves in the vacuum of space. He has some degree of 
confidence they could survive it. And I think the strongest point for these X-Men films are the debates that go on in them, and you get Mystique, and there's this whole sentiment that, yeah, Xavier's doing this because it's going to make him look good in the eyes of the normies, of the non-mutants, and that's his role. He's trying to, yes, we'll do whatever you need to help save the world so you don't attack us, and maybe that's compromising what it means to be a mutant a bit. And so I I like that there is that back and forth that, sure, maybe Beast will go up because the president says so, but Mystique is still... You know, why are we taking orders from people? Why can't we just be ourselves? Why do we have to save the world just to be able to live a normal life? Not only is the fact that Charles is getting all the fame, you know, he's the one that attends dinners and gets the medals and all of that. But I think she even makes it more pointed. You just sit there. We're the ones actually putting our lives on the line. But is that fair? I mean, hasn't Charles proven himself in battle previously? Isn't part of the reason why he's in the chair is because he did put himself on the front of the line? And shouldn't his physical disability count for why he may stay behind? What she says specifically is when's the last time you risked something? Maybe not risked his life, but risked his reputation or risked anything. Maybe taking a risk by telling the president, we don't think this is safe for our people. And he is rolling around with a freaking neon X on the back of his chair. He is high pimping there. And as for Mystique, this is our first look at Jennifer Lawrence in this film. And I got Superman for the quest for peace out of this. Mystique in these films is like Christopher Reeve in Superman. The first film, yes, please, this is going to be great for me, my career. I'm so excited to do it. I'll do whatever you need. Second film, yeah, let's keep going with this. This worked. Third film, well, I'm kind of going to phone in my performance, but I'll be here. Fourth film, I'm not even going to work out. Or in Mystique's case, I am never going to wear full body makeup. The first and second film, her entire arc, and even repeated in the third, is that she embraces her blue form and her nudity. The fact that she will not wear human clothes because she is not human. That was her emotional arc. Here, she's going to be wearing jeans, t-shirts. She's going to be in human form more than blue form. Jennifer Lawrence did the bare minimum required to be in this film. I hear that. I'm going to say that, yes, some of this decision is that she did not want to spend eight hours, 12 hours in a makeup chair, but I actually think it works for the character. I actually think it's interesting the fact that Raven is cloaking herself in non-blue skin when she's on cameras. The X-Men, what has changed between the 80s and now is the X-Men are cool. There's Barbie dolls of her. The Barbie doll naked, which Jennifer Lawrence vetoed when Diamond Select wanted to put out a figure of Mystique for Days of Future Past. I think she's shying from the cameras. What I get from her character is, this is my way of hiding. I'm hiding now as a human being because I don't want these mutant fanboys chasing me around. It's almost like she's embarrassed at this point. I'd completely go with that if it was only in front of the cameras. But when it's just her, Professor Rex, and Hank and Cerebro, and she's wearing jeans, a t-shirt, a necklace, and has her ears pierced in four places, that's Jennifer Lawrence coming to the set and saying, I'm wearing my own clothes. This is where we're doing this. But she is blue for this mission. I mean, she is blue when she gets into the shuttle, and she is the one telling Jean, ostensibly the star of this movie, but maybe not, that she is not going to let Charles' decision impact their safety, that she will abort when she feels it has become too unsafe. She is blue, but she also points out they're wearing matching uniforms. They always wear matching uniforms. If Professor X is saying these uniforms are needed for a PR reason, Mystique may put on clothes for that. It's the jeans and a t-shirt during downtime that I have problems with. And her wig is awful in this. Her makeup isn't great, but her wig, 
wig is god-awful Raggedy Ann type's wig. I don't have any problem with this characterization or with her in this film. She's not in it enough, frankly, to be a factor. <laughs> See, and I got the vibe. I'm like, oh, she seems kind of excited to be back. And then, yeah, she's not in it very long. I'm like, oh, that's why she was so happy. She knew she only had a few days on set. And you know what? It's not her movie. I, she's had many movies to be a focal point, and I've loved her for it. I do think Mystique grew in my esteem because of the movies where she appeared as the character. I mean, she's just cool because she's a shapeshifter. But if it's Dark Phoenix, then we should care about Jean. And that's the focus going into this mission is that Jean's going, along with the other characters they had from the 80s, Quicksilver, Nightcrawler, Cyclops, Storm. Why Storm, though? I got to say, unless you need a refill on your drink ice, there's like no <laughs> point in ever having Storm Ever. If they got a solar sail, she could cause some cosmic winds to blow them somewhere. I had to look this up. Is there moisture in space? She's going to create ice out of space. No, she can create weather in an atmosphere. I'll go with it. She can take moisture from humidity out of the air and make ice cubes. I'm fine with it. She is useless in space. I found this characterization to be pretty useless throughout. Storm has actually never been that important until Halle Berry won an Oscar and then they gave her the school. But the character herself, I'd really have liked to seen one of these movies given her a substantial storyline. I've always felt disconnected from Storm. Yeah, I get the feeling that a lot of them get short shrifted here. And talk about this being a 90s period piece. There's not a whole lot of pop culture references, but it feels very brooding like Grunge Bands were marketed as being because this whole rescue mission, you know... My eight-year-old's favorite character in this movie was Quicksilver. She's like, I like that guy with the white hair. She kept calling him the Flash. <laughs> but I had to go back and show her YouTube clips from the previous films because that always seems like a big moment when Quicksilver goes and does a rescue mission and they pause time and they play some pop song and he saves everyone. Here, it's very muddy what he does. Like, this is his moment to be fast and it's clouded because Nightcrawlers teleporting clouds are all over and it doesn't have that fun that characters like he were shown having in the other films. I've never loved Brian Singer outside of Usual Suspects. I've always had mixed things to say about him. But re-watching all of his films back to back, what I can say is he has a wonderful visual style. When he was given the money to do so, especially in the prequel era films, the costuming and the Quicksilver scenes, both movies, but the Quicksilver scenes are my favorite scenes in those movies. I've got thinking later in this movie, Mystique and Beast are going to say, we're the last of the first class. And I'm like, you're right. Everybody in this movie is second class. And my favorite of the second class is Quicksilver. His attitude, his speed, his fun, his scenes. He's going to get ditched almost as quick as Mystique and not seen for a while. Yeah, he doesn't even get to go on the final mission. I think he's part of the problem. We'll get to it. Let's see. This is his moment to shine. I think for me, the problem is the claustrophobia of being in a space shuttle. There's just no room for him to maneuver. You know, before I'm running through the entire school or I'm doing circles in a giant kitchen. Here, he basically just has to run up to some people, seat belted in and unfasten them. That just doesn't seem like the best use of his ability to sprint. No, I thought we'd see him used a lot more. I do like it when they get those people out. And my second favorite of the second class is Nightcrawler. I really like the characterization here, re-watching him in Apocalypse. He was perhaps the best thing to come out of Apocalypse. And seeing him here, he and Quicksilver save the crew while Storm maybe creates ice out of nothingness. 
Yeah, Storm has no value. Cyclops stopped the spinning. That one thing that was happening was that Kurt couldn't zap over there until it got into a fixed position. So Cyclops put his visor up to a telescope and zapped the ship and it stopped <laughs> moving. They each get one facile little part of the puzzle. So it looks like there was a reason to bring them along. And of course, Gene's big moment is that because they forgot to get the captain. Where's the captain? How big is this shuttle? This guy could clearly have looked all throughout the ship but they didn't get the captain she's got to go over there to hold the ship together in the milliseconds while he looks for the captain and rescues the captain and that's why she gets zapped by the solar flare and it's such a contrived situation because she's like i can hold it together but i have to be on the shuttle to hold it together and one of my favorite little moments is quicksilver he uses his speed and we don't see this in slow-mo he like puts a helmet on nightcrawler and duct tapes the hell duct out tapes of it, it on, yeah <laughs> But Jean goes over with nothing. I mean, I know she's powerful even before the solar flare. We saw her made a force field around her as a little girl. I don't know. I, I, I'm not going to complain about this. Yeah. She can breathe in this breaking up space shuttle. It's inconsistent. I'm not worried. This is a big action scene. It's the beginning of the film. You got to have a scene like this. I'm not worried about how she's breathing. Yeah, I don't think it's the greatest setup for her getting the space power. I think there probably would have been better ways to do it. However, for budget and time and whatever reason, she's standing in the wrong place at the wrong time and she gets zapped and she's there partly at least because Charles said you can do it you should do it however you want to interpret his pep talk it's another example of this powerful male figure putting this woman in harm's way she's a superhero and Raven said she'll turn the place around she gives her the 30 seconds I don't question this choice. I really don't. It's a rescue mission. You do what you can to rescue the others. I mean, Charles isn't any more guilty than the audience. I mean, the audience wants to see them rush into the burning building and say, who gets a medal for telling people, don't send the firemen in. The fire's too big. Like, mm -hmm. we always want to see people defy the odds. So this is a movie that's going to be very challenging in that it's going to make the case sometimes that bites you. The problem is... If you took a certain marginalized people and said, look, if you want to be equal in society, you have to be firemen and you have to risk your life. Again, that's what I find interesting about the debate in this film is, yeah, just because they have superpowers, why is it on them to have to save the world? And I get Mystique's resentment. Yeah, but I don't know what she can do. And I never have really understood Jean Grey, I would say. Knowing her only from the movies, I thought she was mostly like a telepath or something, but it seems like she can do anything that anybody needs at any given moment. And since we've seen mutants absorb power before, Kevin Bacon ate a whole nuclear sub-reactor in first class, it doesn't seem like this dramatic deal that she gets zapped by space lights. I mean, I don't even know what it is. They don't even know what it is. That's not coming from the sun. They call it a solar flare, but it's like this wisp of a space cloud. I call it the Phoenix Force because I've read future comics that would happen and they call it the Phoenix Force. You know, they refer to it as this energy thing. I think naming it Phoenix Force is easier to really put a button on. And it was coming for her. If she'd been on the shuttle, it would have gone to the shuttle. If she'd been on Earth, it would have destroyed the planet. It was coming for her? Where do you get that from? I never got that impression. That was a line of dialogue that made me cringe late into the movie. Oh, okay. So it's just a line. I don't understand that conception. If that were the case, why do we even go up into space and do this at all? Like because it would have destroyed all of Earth if it had come to Earth for her initially. So what is said by Vux later on is 
this is the force that created the universe. Before the Big Bang, there was this Phoenix Force, and now it's been all over the galaxy, and it destroyed the Dabari planet, and so they've been following this force, and it was drawn to Gene as the most powerful being in all of the universe. That's dialogue that comes later that feels like patchwork over something that could have been set up better here, but whatever. This is what we've been told is the preferred version of the story than what Ratner gave us, that she always was the Phoenix and was contained by Charles. Ironically, I feel like that setup would play better to this idea that Charles is a predator or a child abuser. Like if they had kept that idea that she was always the Phoenix and Charles limited her, I could see him as a more negative person than I do. When we get back onto Earth, they definitely want it to, I mean, Mystique is the one to just verbalize it. Like, you could have killed her. We could have been having a funeral. You know, hashtag ex-women. Okay. She says, you should rename this team to ex-women because the women do all the saving. No, Kurt and Quicksilver did everything while Mystique sat on her ass watching. No, and see, that's why I would bring up Quicksilver as maybe not being portrayed as heroic later. He takes credit for what Gene did. He said Gene basically did nothing and he did everything. Oh, see, and I just took that as a joke that he's trying to impress these little kids. Of course it's a joke, but in kidding, that's sometimes where you can slip in things. And it's like, yeah, that's true. He really does have this conception that he's better than everyone else and that she did nothing. I took that just as a complete joke. And if you look at it statistically, Quicksilver and Kurt saved eight crew members, and then Gene and Kurt saved one crew member, nobody could do jack or shit without Kurt. Well, this is one mission. I mean, we got to go tally up everything. And nobody wants to get into that kind of fine-tuning of, well, you did this and I did that. This is not a line that fits the character. This is pandering. You mentioned The Last Jedi. This is like the mansplaining in that film where this does not feel like an organic thing for the character of Mystique to say at this moment. I'm not saying it's not something worth saying. It is something worth saying, but if you're going to say it, you need to earn it and make it feel organic. This feels like she jumped to modern day, hashtag me too. Later on, other characters are going to say equally ham-fisted lines. It starts here. It starts with Mystique. I don't know where this line comes from. Here's what I would say. That she made it about gender, and I think her problem is really, I don't want a boss. This is someone that wants to go into business for herself. She wants to leave the team. To me, Charles is not guilty of anything that, again, most of the audience wouldn't have wanted. Everyone would have wanted the X-Men to rush in and defy the odds and save the day. It seems uncharitable to demonize him for being a privileged white man in power. Anyone white, black, young, old, rich or poor, male or female, wants exceptionalism. That's what we celebrate in America, and it makes sense that America is rallying around the mutants because they're being exceptional. And she is railing on the general for ordering the troops into a battle? I mean, but they're only troops because this is the only way they could coexist with humanity, and that's her resentment, is they're not allowed to just be. I don't understand her resentment fully, because all of a sudden she's going to say to Beast, what do you think the X in X-Men stands for? Well, she's been around for a long time, and she's never had this problem. She stuck around Admittedly, at the end of the first two movies, she left. She's always had a problem. She's always been running away. But at the end of the third movie, she chose to stay with these X-Men. 
I'm getting that Xavier is enjoying the privilege. They talk about, I wish they showed instead of tell, but they say he's on magazine covers and getting presidential medals. I mean, we see him being celebrated for saving the shuttle when he wasn't even on there. I get that, and if her problem was his ego and his taking risks, I would completely agree with her. And she's going to leave. She wants to leave. Now, again, take a look at the fact that she's not blue. I think the celebrity triggers her. I think what she's really saying is all of this attention on us makes me highly uncomfortable. And, you know, I've known people that like they've gone through a physical transformation. Maybe they lost a lot of weight or something. And you think, oh, they're going to be really extroverted. In fact, sometimes the opposite happens. Like, oh, all these people love you and you have your own doll and we want to interview and meet you and all that. And she's like, I don't want to be here anymore. I, To me, that's where I see the root of her anger. She's misdirecting some of it at Charles for being the one in charge when in fact, she just doesn't want to be in the spotlight. If I were Charles, I would say, thank you very much. Go do your thing. I think they, what she's really saying is I've reached the point where I no longer fit into this school and I need to go do my own thing. Great. Here's how I see Charles, because we're going to see a thing where Jean is off the charts. Beast is like looking at our, all her vitals and we're going to go into her mind. And, the, you know, the, all the reveals where Charles put these blocks around her memories. And I think the debate here is, is this abusive? I mean, it's bad therapy. <laughs> repress everything, repress everything and you'll turn out OK. We're a little more enlightened today. Get some therapy. That's what Jean needs. Get an ex-therapist, talk out these issues so you can control your powers. So it's not that I see Xavier as evil or as an abuser, but just, again, doing gender stereotypes. Here's how I see Xavier, that he's, yeah, in the Me Too era, he's more or less a typical dude, and now we see, oh, maybe there's something toxic to that kind of masculinity where it's repress, repress, repress. I think this movie is giving Charles the harder time, but I think when it eventually gets to the female feminist militant, it's just as extreme. We will be the woman that tries to control Gene, and that is not a path to go down either. I believe Me Too is also criticized by this movie, but we do start with Charles being the focus of what is wrong here and the culture that has become too repressive. Honestly, personally, I don't think it's a terrible thing to shield an eight-year-old girl from the idea of the role she might have played in killing her mother. I don't think that's terrible. And if her father didn't want her because of that, and you want to nurture her and feel like she isn't broken, I just don't see that as evil. It's manipulative, but not evil. I agree. I don't see Xavier as evil, but she's, what, in her mid-20s, almost late 20s here? Yeah, at some point, you can't just repress that. If she's not broken, then there's got to be a healthy way to resolve all this and her to come to terms of what was done. Later on, Mystique is going to say, there's another word for that. Is the word they're reaching for gaslighting? Are they trying to say he gaslit her by repressing one memory? Well, Mystique disappears before I feel like we can end this conversation and any kind of satisfying conclusion. My preference, just to jump ahead a little bit, would be that if Jean had killed Xavier and Mystique had to play the role of a mentor. She's very easy to criticize the boss when you're not the boss, but when you have to be the boss and make those tough choices, it would have been interesting to see her be mother to Jean. And Jean clearly needs a mother. She lost a mother. She was tired of hearing the single father line. So there would have been ways to adapt this story to give all of these ideas a lot more consideration. We're not going to get the movie that I want. Yeah, 
Jennifer Lawrence can't get out of this film fast enough, truthfully. It must have been a part of the agreement for her coming back is you will kill me in this one. There really is no good reason to kill her here. If you were going to kill a character, I mean, last stand, Jean killed Xavier. And Cyclops. Yes. Off screen. Right. Yeah, that weird kiss. But we are getting more of the comic book. Jean is saying she's more than fine. Not only does she not die from absorbing this Phoenix Force... But it actually it makes her want to chug alcohol and party. And Was that alcohol she was chugging? There's a whole Dazzler kegger going on on the lawn. I know who Dazzler is now. Yeah, I couldn't believe we got a Dazzler cameo. I, that's more for the 70s. She's the disco X-Man. She is the disco X-Man, but she was introduced in the 80s. Oh, it wasn't until the 80s she came along? They missed the disco. Yeah, her first appearance was January 1980. So maybe it slipped in into the 1979 as far as on shelf date. To me, that's still 70s enough. Disco, according to Wikipedia, died in 1980. Maybe Marvel killed it with their over-commercialization of it because she was introduced with the intent of being a multimedia Marvel star. They were going to make a disco album for her, and she was the first Marvel character that was slated to go to the big screen with her disco movie. She was in Dark Phoenix storyline, and she was at a disco, and my sense is they wanted to not only reference the comic book, but it was a very 90s thing. If this movie's struggling to work in 90s things, to get that pop single and stick it in a movie somehow so that you can make a music video and market it in a different way. Here we're getting a British soul singer I don't know very well, Emily Sandy. That is not the song we're getting. Oh, that's not Extraordinary Being? I thought it would be, but I went and listened. Extraordinary Being was released before the movie. Yeah. It sounds like, if you remember Soul to Soul, Back to Life, Keep on Moving, it had that, what they call acid jazz. It has a very old school, and I'm thinking 80s music video. The video is her singing, intermixed with a lot of clips of the music. It reminded me of the Axel F video where you'd see Harold Faltemeyer playing keyboard and then mostly Eddie Murphy. Mm -hmm. But there's a line. First of all, the song she's singing... To me, it sounds more like what I'm hearing today on pop radio, like Halsey. Yeah, it did seem very current. It felt remixed. Don't get me wrong. What is in the music video is not what Dazzler is performing. And there's a line Dazzler sings in the bridge that says, I want to feel your hands on me. And that's nowhere in the Extraordinary Being song. I listened to the whole thing. Nothing in Extraordinary Being sounds like what Dazzler's performing here. I'm kicking myself. I wish I'd stayed through the credits. I'd love to know what song this is because I would like this single. I like this song Dazzler singing much more than Extraordinary Being. But yeah, this is Dazzler. They finally got her in. She was referenced but cut from Apocalypse during the mall scene. And so now we get to see her. And this is as useful as Dazzler ever gets. There's always these fun little cameos of other X-Men that they couldn't work into the storylines. I think with X2, we did see an early version of Colossus before Deadpool made him a more popular character. And yeah, he was pretty big in X3, though. Okay, that's right. He did show up there. But uh, yeah, this I feel like there's not a lot of Easter eggs here. And maybe it's because it came in under budget. And this is like that one time, oh, there's a more popular X-Men that like never got a main role. In, but we never really see any other ones. The focus is on... The last class, you know, Mystique, this is the moment where she turns to Hank and says, we're the last ones, which had me thinking, where did everyone go from that first movie? Darwin, we know, Shaw killed. Angel was, we saw a picture in Days of Future Past. She was one of Trask's experiments. Mm -hmm. Havoc died in the school explosion in the 80s. What happened to Banshee? 
he was also one of the cut-up people that died by Trask. Okay. And there were rumors, because it is said in Days of Future Past, Emma Frost also went under Trask's knife. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of rumors, though, because nobody knew who Jessica Chastain was playing in this. And Emma Frost and the Hellfire Club was a big part of the Dark Phoenix comic saga. A lot of rumors where Jessica Chastain is brought in because she can actually act and she would play Emma Frost. Mm -hmm. She has that kind of emotionally distant poise while still being able to, I guess, to get in the bathing suit if that's what you needed. She is not going to play Emma Frost. Emma is still dead under Trask, but... I mean, and we do see Jessica Chastain's character, Vuck. Is that what it is? Yeah, I kept writing Vlix, if you're familiar with that (laughs) rare Star Wars figure. Yes. In my notes, I just kept writing Vlix, but it's Vux. But we see her entrance before this party scene, and it's very awkward because we cut from her entrance to this party scene. I'm like, oh, are these all aliens dancing around or kids partying in the woods that the aliens are going to take over? Because we get shapeshifters, the Dabari, who are the race of aliens that are killed by Dark Phoenix in the comic. I guess there's a few surviving ones here. They want that force to rebuild their planet, and so they're shapeshifting and trying to fit in with society. Much Again, they're like the scrolls. They look like the green gray aliens from the 90s, like the Mm X-Files. This was the most 90s thing I got out of it was the alien autopsy videos that were on TV and things. Whitley Strieber and Communion, you know, that was, it all started with his supposed true story of how he was taken by little green men and experimented on. And the grays is, I think, how he characterized them. And that's still how we think of aliens from 1990s movies. So, yeah, I guess this is a little touch of the 90s here. I wanted so much more of this. I thought this scene actually kind of worked. It reminded me of, like, sort of the Body Snatchers paranoia. Like, them coming out of the forest, her, like, getting taken and then going back to the dinner party of what I presume is FBI agents. We'll find out later. She's able to use credentials of the FBI. So I think they're specifically targeting people that can help them get into the information systems of 1990s America. I'm so confused. I mean, there's going to be an African-American who works for Vox who's at the White House. You're talking about Jones. Jones is a waitstaff at the White House party that Charles is at. Right, but he reports to Vox. Vox is the leader of later. the group. Yeah. yeah, he's the one that pulls out the FBI badge yeah. later on to get into a crime scene. Right, she never does. So I thought he, maybe he was FBI. I guess you're right, he was a waiter, but... I never thought that these people at the dinner party were anything other than rich people. I don't even know where we are. I don't know if we're in New York. There's a body of water that may be an ocean. I'm saying this is Atlantic coast, probably New England-ish. That looks like a lake. And they're having this fancy dinner party, and it's kind of a horror movie scene. The dog is barking. She's going to go out to check on the dog. All of these grays come out of the shadows. Then we see one transform into her. All right, we're in 1992, one year after T2 came out, and I was still wearing my Terminator 2 sunglasses in 1992. These aliens, they seem to need to touch someone before they can shapeshift into them. They aren't like Mystique, who could just shapeshift into anyone they look at. I got a big T-1000 vibe off of how they shapeshifted, and like, they're gonna touch the husband, and he's just gonna fall over dead, and they're gonna all take over the bodies of these party people at the fancy dinner party. She's got some kind of stomach move. She does it a couple times where, like, she can hurt you by, like, making your abs cave in. Yeah, I did not get that scene. Mm -hmm. I'm like, what just happened there? She's not telekinetic. She can't make jack or shit move to her hand or anything, but she can look at you and make you die or suffer. It's a 
odd move, but I was thinking Skrull for sure because we just saw Captain Marvel in the 90s, but I was thinking a lot more, especially later on, with the way they're going to get shot and just stand there and then heal. It felt like they were evoking James Cameron. Would Fox have the rights to use the word Skrull? They own the Skrulls as part of the Fantastic Four. Okay. But... They made a deal with Marvel, some kind of trade, where Marvel was allowed to use the Skrulls in Captain Marvel before the deal of buying or anything. Nobody knows if that deal meant they were giving the Skrulls exclusively to Marvel, or if, like, we have two Quicksilvers, one in Age of Ultron and one in this. Yeah, but one's got to be Quicksilver and one's got to be Peter Maximoff. Like, they're not allowed to call him Quicksilver in the MCU. Mm -hmm. And they're not allowed to be kids of Magneto in the MCU. Who knows if the deal would have allowed for Skrulls here. I think because Dabari were the race destroyed, they make them Dabari. And why they can shapeshift, it's so we can have Jessica Chastain in a villain role. She's turned down a lot of comic book movie roles. She took this one. God only knows why. I'm guessing a number of zeros in a paycheck. Chastain works for me sometimes. I mean, she has a coldness that can be really off-putting sometimes. And sometimes, yeah, you could make it look like evil or you could just look at conflicted, you know, like a damaged individual. But her transformation here sets her up for so much more than what the movie is going to do. I would have liked 20 more minutes of Alien in this film. The comic book gave a lot of floor space to these aliens that Dark Phoenix destroyed worlds of theirs and then they were coming really as retribution to claim ours, you really need to do more with that. Yeah, Jessica Chastain, I think I've talked bad about her on the show in the past. I really disliked her as Murph in Interstellar, but I saw Molly's Game. I loved Molly's Game, and I loved her in Molly's Game, so she can work for me in the right role. Here, it's whatever. She doesn't work for me or not. Yeah, she's kind of bland, and I think you're right, Stuart, because they don't do enough to develop these aliens. I was surprised how little aliens, how little outer space actually ended up being in this film. Like, at one point, I'm like, oh, you could have just written these aliens out. You don't really need them, and I'm still convinced of that. You didn't need them to show up, and with what little they did with them, why have them here? They want a villain. It's the same issue they had with X3 and Civil War. They don't want the big bad to be a a hero. They don't want this movie to end the way they ended The Last Stand, where the only way to win is kill Gene. You know, Wolverine shoved his claws in her. And so they have to have a different enemy to team up and vanquish at the end, like Civil War. But by doing this alien species that vaguely, and I don't even think this was originally in the script because they don't show Jessica Chastain's face much when she's talking about killing all the humans and things. We're always seeing the back of her head when she's like, we can kill everyone and repopulate this planet. That was like, I wonder if test audiences were, we don't understand what she wants or why she's evil. There are ways to do that. Yeah, she's an Oscar-nominated actress who's quite capable of doing whatever you want her to do. So why didn't they make more consideration for her, more room for this alien storyline. It seems like a huge mistake. I'm going to praise this film, though. Both of Singer's previous films, if you take the road cut, were two and a half hour X-Men movies. This one comes in under two hours with credits. It moves. I'm never bored. It goes scene, 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 and something is always happening. Characters are always changing. I don't feel there's any waste here. Would I like a little bit more explanation for these aliens? Yes, but I don't want to slow down the film. I would prefer to have this movie 20 minutes longer and have these people matter, for sure. 
But it's about Dark Phoenix, so the focus, I guess, should be the fact that Gene explodes at the party and Charles has to come home and, again, have this debate about what his role was. This is where he realizes he can no longer penetrate his mind. He has to use Cerebro. If he were really evil, he wouldn't have invited Mystique, Hank, and Scott to all come in there and see what he was doing inside of her mind. But he's just letting them know as they're swirling around her neurons that, yeah, I put this block on her as a child so that she didn't know her father was still alive. Are we to presume at this moment, are we to think that he wrestled guardianship away? No, no, I think the father gave it away. No, I know he did, but are we to think Charles did that for his own reasons? Because otherwise, why are you belaboring this? If a child is being cast away, if the mother is abandoning a child, someone stepping in is only perceived as a good thing. I never understood why he needed to block it, but I also never understand why he's seen so evil for blocking it. Why not write it this way? Why not write it that Charles did take her away because he saw the power and potential? If you're going to hint at something, do it. If Charles is a jerk and a villain, then write it that way. And I don't know if it's necessarily they want to make him a jerk or a villain. Again, going back to real life scenarios, It's not that men were always jerks and villains throughout history. It's just attitudes have changed and we think differently now. And you could say it's enlightenment, call it whatever you want. It's just things have shifted. If you had someone in this scenario back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, whatever, that might be the way you handle it. Today, it is different. Here's the problem. There does seem to be a double standard. When we have a Spider-Man, you say with great power comes great responsibility. But when you get to the same sentiment being expressed to a woman, you're immediately assumed to be a misogynist. Like you're taking away her power and that's a negative thing. No, nobody should wield power through their emotions uncontrolled and untapped. Gene needs guidance from a mentor. And if it makes you more comfortable, okay, a female mentor or preferably both. But I do not think they have written Charles in the way that he would work for this story. No. The anger directed at Charles is somewhat out of proportion to the sin that he committed. He blocked a memory that her father lived. That's all he did. He didn't repress her power. He did everything to try to... And he tells her, which is, I think, the right thing. When, as a little girl, she says, you think you can fix me. He's like, you are not broken. Right. He's building her up. Or is he gaslighting her? It's not gaslighting to say you're not broken. It's gaslighting to say, oh, you're so broken. Only I can help you. Correct. And what is he doing by taking her in? I don't see that he used her to create Cerebro or bring more people to the school. I don't see that he benefited from anything by bringing her on. No. But there's also this aspect of PR with Xavier. There was already that debate with Mystique and him where he's like, oh, we got to go on these rescue missions so the X-Men look good. And if he senses, here's this all the most powerful mutant in the universe or whatever... Yeah, let me try to contain that and not let her get out of control again like she got with her parents. But she wasn't the most powerful mutant in the universe in this movie's continuity until she was hit with the Phoenix Force. Well, then why would Xavier block this then instead of getting her therapy? Because no child, if you're trying to make them feel like they're worthwhile and not broken, needs to hear that their parent doesn't love them anymore. That's devastating. The fact that this father, in words, said, I don't want her. She's dead to me because my wife is dead. Will continue to live in the house where he raised her for eight years, but take down all photos of her. If that were my backstory, I wouldn't want to know that. 
that is really hurtful. But we also saw that in other X-Men films where parents would call the cops to turn their kids in, and there is some inconsistency here. It feels like if they were really these kind of mutants and parents were rejecting them or afraid of them or whatever, like with Rogue touching people and them almost dying, again, there should be some mutant therapist going on. I get that you can see that what he did was not totally on the up and up. Anytime you lie, you're not being honest. I mean, that's by <laughs> definition. I get yeah. that he's a liar. And being told to repress, 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 that is not healthy. But Jean will eventually conclude once she gets over the anger of being lied to that, oh, you did it out of love and I totally forgive you. So it's really not what they need. What they needed to do is what they imply could have been which is that Charles saw the potential of this girl and made the dad think that he couldn't raise her. Mm -hmm. Let me take this on. You're not equipped. If they had written it like that, then everything that they're putting in here about the subtext and trying to control women's power would play a whole lot better. And who knows? Maybe that was the script. Maybe it didn't play well to the test audiences because any scene with Charles and the father is shot weird, is shown in a dreamlike state. We'll never know the full way that was scripted and shot. But yeah, the punishment doesn't fit the crime for what Xavier is told here. And I agree with both of you, basically. Jacob, there's no reason for Xavier to have blocked that memory. At least not that long. Maybe slowly releasing. No, not until she's in her 20s. Yeah. Yeah. As she grows in confidence, let her slowly remember the way Wolverine slowly remembered his past by going to Alkali Lake. I don't understand why he did it, and I don't understand why everybody else is so mad that he did it to this extreme, other than the repercussions of it, which are more, she is controlled by the Phoenix Force at this point. We're going to be told this is evil Gene, that good Gene is somewhere in there, and she can't control it. I don't even feel like there's ever an evil gene. It's just this force is so strong. But I don't blame those for getting mad at Xavier. Sure, this is set in the 90s, but this feels very much like Twitter outrage culture. <laughs> like, we, we are going to make immediate judgment. Which is never justified, Jacob. That is never justified. So why would you take the side of the Twitter mob? I'm not. I'm saying they rush to judgment. I feel like these X-Men films are much more nuanced than the Marvel films have ever been. And so, yeah, no one right or wrong. There's lots of shades of gray here. They rushed to judgment. Xavier did some bad things. Everyone needs to sit down and talk it out. And I feel like there's a lot of talking in this movie. Like, we'll get a big fight at the end in the third act, and we had some stuff in space. But I feel like a lot of this film is just people having soap opera-like debates. Yeah, I wish the writing were better. I mean, I don't have a problem with that. I agree. I'm the person that always said, let's not do action for action's sake. Let's make it about themes and have people working through stuff. But I do think that in the past, Kinberg has written many X scripts and other superhero movies we've covered. He's had people come in and rewrite him and redo. And because there seems to be no love for this movie, he was allowed to do everything on his own. And I feel like, he could have used some help. He could have used a Professor X or somebody to come in and say, don't do that, more of this. It just, I'm with you. The debate is really, really interesting. It's the best thing this movie has going for it, but it's not framed correctly and it's not dramatically satisfying. And I think you could say that. I mean, we had a big debate about The Last Stand, this whole thing. Would you take a pill if it could make you normal? And how does that apply if you're homosexual or, or just something else? Would that be a good thing in real life? But that's a really clumsy film, too, to have that kind of debate. I appreciate that they're trying. 
that's fair. And you know what? I appreciate that that storyline is not in Dark Phoenix. Again, that was the problem with Last Stand for me, was that there were two movies in one. And while they were at the same time trying to tell this Dark Phoenix storyline, they were really more obsessed with the mutant cure. Mm -hmm. And so it just gave way more floor space to characters other than Gene. Here, let's consider what happened to Gene. Was it fair? And now that she's angry about it and has the power to change things, what is that going to look like? I think the movie's worst kept surprise, given away in all the early trailers, so obvious that when Arnie, you said it was going to happen, I'm like, oh no, they can't, they, they, <laughs> they won't kill Mystique. They're trying to make you think that you will. They gave this away? I don't remember this. Oh my God. It's so obvious in the trailer. You see Mystique flying back and then you cut to everybody but Mystique at a grave. And then later on, you see absolutely everybody but Mystique on that train scene. And so, yeah, I'm like, Stuart, Jennifer Lawrence has made no secret since the first movie. When Hunger Games hit and she became J-Law, she made a fuss about how Fox wasn't paying her enough. And they wouldn't renegotiate her contract. And she hates the makeup and hates the fumes. And by the way, she's probably right. I'm probably on her side. Fox does underfund these movies. Okay, but contracts are contracts. But yes, it is not uncommon in Hollywood to renegotiate contracts based upon huge success. Maybe they should have paid her a little more. She was worth more. She was a great part of the first two films. She was always on the posters, prominently. But much like Harrison Ford wanting to die in Return of the Jedi and that being in the public and everybody knew he was going to die in The Force Awakens because it was a 20-year promise, I knew Jennifer Lawrence wasn't coming out of this and I knew she was going to go early. She was going to be the inciting incident towards everything that would happen after. It's an unearned death and they're going to play. I don't even know if... Jean means to kill her or just we've seen her twice lose control and do this big telekinetic burst it knocked down trees it gave Cyclops a black eye no Artie what I think it's saying is we talked about how stereotypes with men stereotype with women when she gets emotional she loses control and people die in this instant if people die when you lose control, you do need to control those emotions. Emotions do need to be controlled. You shouldn't be 100% emotional. I agree. She goes to see her dad, and I think this could have been a scene that played better because I feel like this has a real-life corollary today of people seeking out their birth parents. I know several adopted people who did the birth parent hunt, and sometimes the birth parent and the child reconnect and you have an extended family and sometimes the birth parent is like i gave you up for a reason please why are you here i didn't want you in my life we saw that recently in shazam so here i felt like this could have played to a more real life parallel and instead it's just a reason for gene to get mad again it had already been told to us that he rejected her. So we knew what was coming here. I mean, it was kind of like an obvious setup. And again, another like underpopulated set. There's nobody in this neighborhood. There's one kid on a bike and he rides <laughs> past her. And you know what I thought? Creepy Carrie, creepy Carrie. Because I thought they might be recreating that De Palma scene. Only Gene doesn't knock this kid down on his bike. No, they're recreating The Last Stand. I really did think Xavier was going to die. I'm like, eh, it doesn't matter. These X-Men aren't going on any of their films. Let's just recreate that. And I do think they should have. I mean, I think that's the better story choice. If Charles had messed up, let's just write it that way. If Charles had manipulated the dad to take Jean away so that he could exploit her and create the school that he had, he would need to die for that. 
and she would kill him in this moment, then it's for Mystique, who was so critical of Charles, to now have to be the parent and step up. Yeah, that is the better film. (laughs) Yes, I completely agree. Although I don't know that Xavier had to die. I think living in exile would have been also an appropriate punishment. Taking away everything he'd worked so hard to build, having him be the outcast, if he had done this for greedy reasons, would have been just desserts. I don't know that he would have had to die for it unless Mystique does die here. So yes, the father rejects her. She goes out. The father apparently called the police. My daughter showed up. Yeah, I was wondering who called the cops. I don't even know if he rejects her. He gets her a glass of water. It's when she realizes he has no pictures of her on the wall. It's all him and his wife. She kind of loses it then. I think it's kind of a rejection when he said, my life ended that day, including you. I want no part of you. You know, that's more than a subtle hint. That's more (laughs) than a, it's not you, it's me. Yeah, no, I get that. What it was more powerful to me was, again, showing and not telling is her realizing there's no pictures of her in that house. Yeah, I thought that was a really powerful moment in this film. And then they take it a step beyond. It starts shaking. You think, oh, she's going to lose it. No, it's just the jet landing. They're there. You know, she is in a love affair with Scott. And Scott should be the one to talk her down. You know, he made a big deal about, I thought I lost you in space and you came back to me and you promised to always come back to me. She kind of knocked him out to leave the school. Scott just slumps over. My first time watching, I'm like, is he dead? I thought she might've killed him. I'm like, oh my God, they're not doing X3 again, are they? I thought she was going to kill way more people because I'm like, okay, she's not going to go into outer space and kill a planet. Maybe she is going to take out half the X-Men though. Are we missing Wolverine? Do we need a triangle to make this more interesting here or is he just the sappy boyfriend that's not as cool that just Hugh Jackman is too old to be her I said this with Age of Apocalypse like it doesn't match up with this age that they're making them oh no I'm not saying bring back Hugh I'm saying recast well not at this point they had Hugh in the last one it would be difficult to recast Hugh ever we'll get one of the Jonas Brothers playing Wolverine in the Marvel Universe but not now and what Kinberg said is what you're saying Jacob the age difference would be creepy because no matter how you slice it Wolverine is like a hundred and Jean Grey is I think she's supposed to be in her 30s or something but she's playing it really young well, the what I think happens is they end up turning Beast into Wolverine. Like, he'll end up, certainly in his fighting style later, he'll look a lot like Jackman did in his fight scenes. And they did have one moment where he was checking out Jean Grey. I mean, literally, like, a medical checkup of Jean Grey, and Scott got very jealous. So I felt like they were trying to imply some kind of love triangle there. Maybe, but I feel like the real love triangle was always between Beast, Magneto, and mystique in these films i agree and we saw that very clearly in the first film they kind of got together in the second film but she was using him in the third film they apparently made up i take it as beast and mystique or a couple here her dying words will be i love you that's why beast is going to team up with magneto in this film because mystique is taken out And that may have been influenced by real life. Keep in mind that Jennifer Lawrence and Nicholas Holt did have an affair and then it went bad. Oh, I saw the pictures. Yeah. So like that would may have been another reason why she was not overjoyed to be on the set of Apocalypse. Actually, they're apparently good friends. Well, I'm just saying in the moment we cannot know. Apparently is just another word for rumor. But I do think, even if I'm rather underwhelmed with this Phoenix, I'm feeling like we've given her more floor space and she's not doing much different than what Brett Ratner shoehorned into that film. The fact that she seeks out Eric, 
Who else could better understand her at this point than another mutant who has killed his own kind and humans to get what he thought was right? This seems like the brilliant team-up that enlivens the film when we get Michael Fassbender blowing in. That's what we got in X3, right? Phoenix went from Xavier to Magneto's team. and Yeah, Magneto recruited her, though, in The Last Stand. Here, she goes to him. Yeah, and we had seen McKellen all over the early part of that film. We had kind of forgotten Michael Fassbender was going to be in this movie. She lands on this island. It ends up being like a mutant reservation, like an Indian reservation. The government has given a space. They have that in the comics, yeah. I thought all of this was really cool. What's going on here? Yeah, you killed JFK. Here, have an island. Well, we don't know if he did. He claims that he was trying to stop it. Right, but we don't know why the government would ever believe him since they'd already convicted him and put him in a cell forever. But we do this all the time with other countries. We form peace accords. It has to happen. In order for war to stop, you have to make peace. And that means putting aside what you did in the past and saying we're going to live Side by side. Yeah, we did this with our own country. Hey, Native Americans, yeah, you have your little reservation and you guys just do your things there and we won't have to fight anymore and you'll just live in extreme poverty. I guess Magneto's doing a little bit better and that looks like a nice little commune. I'm not going to call him Magneto. This is Eric. Yeah. Magneto is in a box upstairs. He is not putting on that helmet. He is not thinking of a new plot. You know, he needs the helmet to keep Charles out of his head. He's not thinking anything that Charles can't know. No, and I love what they do with Eric every time 10 years pass. He is always the most interesting character because the Xavier folk are just all at the school and learning and doing and nuke students come and go. Magneto, Eric, always has something interesting. He got married. He had a daughter for Apocalypse, my favorite storyline there. Here, he started Genosho. Yeah, straight from the comic, but it's he always wanted to lead mutants. Here, he is the leader of this commune. It's a little hippie-ish, but hey, there were still some cults like that going on in the 90s, the Branch Davidians and things. No, that's not a great reference. <laughs> I mean, there's some that are <laughs> successful that aren't raping children or whatever. But. but weren't the Branch Davidians, didn't the FBI raid their compound and kill a lot of people? Yeah. And here we have the military coming to raid the compound? Uh, we have two choppers coming. Coming in because this budget is low. <laughs> My wife was cracking up during this scene. Like they're fighting. Gene's trying to send a helicopter away and Eric's trying to save it. And I was just cracking up because of these hand motions. She's like, oh, I got to use a second hand now because this is a really strong struggle. I was cracking up because I'm like, I want to see this before the visual effects were put in. And just people standing there <laughs> yes. waving their hands around. I felt like we got an aerial shot of that where Fastbender's like bending backwards and his hands are out. And I'm like, you know... Take away the score, which is fantastic. Hans Zimmer killed it with the score here. What are you talking about? It's horrible. It's just a soprano boy going, Oh, I love the score of this film beginning to end. And I've listened to it twice just on CD since. Okay, you dig in. But to me, this could only be less exciting if they were literally kicking an aluminum can around. Like this is not an action scene worthy of this franchise. But I'm saying without the music and the sound effects and things, those two would look really silly. And they look silly with it. I like Fassbender, though, looking like he's struggling compared to Sophie Turner, who just standing there now maybe she's supposed to make it look easy but her face is kind of stone in that 
scene. I wish I got more anger out of her. Well, again, I wanted more out of their scene together. Before this attack happens... Oh, I love the build-up to this. You're, yeah. Yeah, where she has that blood, and Eric keeps asking, whose blood is that? And you're like, oh, shit, that's Mystique's, and they had a whole relationship. You're waiting for that to explode into something. Yeah, how do you stop is a question that only Eric could answer because he did do what she did and he did stop. And I'm wanting to see that transpire. Except he killed intentionally and we're never positive that Mystique was an intentional murder. There's still guilt. It's still manslaughter. And Magneto killed a lot of people wonderfully in the beginning of first class and then again when in Poland when his daughter died he kills a lot of people time and time again she's killed one person how do you stop the bigger question is how do I control my power I'm so powerful and Magneto has been called the most powerful mutant because of he can control so much metal that would have been better there's so much cut out of the scene though that's in the trailers there's a line where Magneto said you didn't come here for advice you came here for permission and so who does she want to kill what is really going on in the scene we'll never know yeah i just like the tension that she has killed mystique who i'm like oh that's gonna send him over the edge that's what's gonna get him out of here and then it kind of anticlimactic this stupid little helicopter battle it is very disappointing and if you remember the first brian singer was underfunded they didn't have a lot of action you guys were mad about that this has 200 million behind it you can say that whatever that means, I look at what's on screen and it's paltry. This looks like TV to me. Now, maybe it took 50 of those to get Jennifer Lawrence in a third of the film, but yeah, this looks small scale. The two helicopter scene. It's better than Inhumans, but it still looks that caliber. It's better than either of Brian Singer's original X-Men films. Yeah, and compared to even Apocalypse, like they could have thrown more money at this. I mean, say what you will about Apocalypse, it at least did have apocalyptic battles. That when the action did happen, nukes were firing, big things were happening. Here, two choppers on an island is not something to get excited about, but suddenly it's causing a whole manhunt. Now everyone must find Phoenix because of this moment and because of what happened with Mystique. And it started internment camps. We hear on the news after the Phoenix events with her father killing the cops and then in Genosha, the president won't take Xavier's calls anymore. They say on the news, the internment camps, it's quite a turnabout over one person. And is this, I mean, I hate to say it, but is this a pro-gun argument? Like, well, a gun shoots up a school and now you want to take away all our guns? One person does something bad and now you want to put everyone in an internment camp? She needed to be Akira. I mean, she needed to unleash World War III nuclear devastation. We needed that in this moment. Her fury needed to engulf the earth. And instead, it's two choppers. <laughs> they don't ever show us the internment camps. And I guess they say the president's considering them. But come on, Jean Grey killed some cops. I don't think she actually succeeded in killing any of the troops, maybe in that first chopper. Nah. I mean, the chopper had landed at that point, so I thought they were all out of it. But he's going to go up and round up, what, Toad? And put them in camps while Jean Grey is the real problem? Right, and they can't find her because she's mimicking a barfly in some seedy New York dive. But because Vux, I don't know, 
Because. Yes, because she can see through it all. I get that her alien mind allows her not to be manipulated the way that drunks at a New York bar would be, but she just stumbles back into the plot very clumsily, takes her to her Upper East Side penthouse and says, oh yeah, by the way, you could do anything you want. Maybe she tracked the Phoenix Force. Maybe somehow she was drawn to it. This whole alien thing, like we said, we saw the waiter at the White House who's looking at Charles like he knows something about Charles. I don't know how these aliens know Charles or anything. I could get that they'd follow the Phoenix Force, but they never seem to make it to the school. They need to give Bucks the same drubbing that they gave Charles. Because she represents the other side of it. She is a fake feminist. She says, woman power, do what you want. You got all of that. But really, she just wants to seduce and manipulate and control her. Or she wants to suck all of that power out of her. So, I mean... They're giving it back to Me Too as well. I don't feel like Kinberg is saying that women are the answer and that men are all the aggressor. What she's going to say in this moment, though, is men were taking your power. Men were telling you not to be emotional. I agree that the grooming and gaslighting that Vox does here is worse than what Charles does because Vox has the plan to just use this girl for her own purposes, which, as you've said, would be nice in this movie if Charles had it but doesn't. So to me, I feel like Kinberg is undermining his own statement. I just never got that it was intentional. I just thought it was clumsy. Oh, it felt very intentional to me. Yeah, this woman says, oh yeah, I support you, but she does not. And indeed, we'll find out at the very end, taking the power out of her will kill Jean. So this woman really has it out to kill Jean and use that power to kill everyone else on Earth. But all of this, I love the setup. I love the idea of an early draft of saying this is what the stakes are going to be, who she's going to meet, and as she's wrestling with power, what she's going to be confronting. But this thing is underfunded, it's underdeveloped, and it just feels so small. To be in a little bedroom in the Upper East Side to explain the cosmos, it's pathetic. Why not just have the scene, we've seen Phoenix fly, why not have them go to the cosmos? That's what's so weird to me is one of the big criticisms with The Last Stand is, oh, you understurved the Phoenix story and it's so trite and goes by so quickly. I think they have different nuances here. I don't think for the people that want that big cosmic story, you're not going to get it here. You could apply those same criticisms from The Last Stand to this one. Definitely. And I think the thought must have been, let's get the climax up into space. They shot something that was up into space. I'm presuming that's what it was. Let's take her up into space again. And there's a graphic here in the bedroom where they show a dead world and she repopulates it until it looks like a tropical paradise. The thought must have been, do that to Earth right now, and the X-Men fly back up and have a space battle. I'm guessing that might have been the original ending. Some of it. When we get to the train scene, I'll say what the other ending was going to be. But here, it explains the Phoenix Force and why the Dabari are really angry. And this is where we get that dropped line, it was coming for you. And meanwhile, the X-Men are kind of falling apart. We have one of my favorite scenes in the movie is... Post-grave, we get Beast, and I think he's just drinking water, and Charles comes in with some brandy or bourbon or something brown, and those two really go at it, and Beast is blaming Charles, and Charles can't admit he ever did anything wrong. Now, maybe, again, the crime doesn't fit the punishment, but he was wrong to block her brain, and he cannot admit it. His arrogance is his downfall. 
I'm not even willing to say that that's wrong. We don't have the capacity to turn off bad memories, but certainly a lot of therapy is about shaping them so that you can live with yourself. Yeah, but she hasn't had real therapy. I mean, again, this is a woman that I think is almost in her 30s at this point. You can't block it forever. Yeah, agreed. I see what they're going for, but (laughs) my frustration is that they didn't do it. That applies to the whole film. Yes, I could go with the other instinct and saying what great instincts they have, what good setups they have. I'm more frustrated than I am happy with what I'm seeing here, including this climax that we do get. Okay, cool. Charles is willing to go fight again. He's putting his life on the line again. Poor Nightcrawler is going to have to wheel him around a busy Fifth Avenue, leaving Central Park to have some kind of battle with a guy with magic dreadlocks and a bald psychic. Better than the Medusa effects. Yeah, the guy with dreadlocks, I had to look him up. He is not from any comic. Okay, I didn't think so. In pre-release stuff, they said he was going to be Red Lotus, but Red Lotus doesn't have magic dreads. And then there's also Celine, who's the psychic that's on Magneto's side. He always likes a psychic, you know? He got Emma Frost, and now he's got Celine. Celine is actually a pretty big character. She's supposedly, in the comics, older than Apocalypse. She was the Black Queen of the Hellfire Club, other than the Jean Grey clone Black Queen. But Celine became a Black Queen of the Hellfire Club. Yeah, I like the moment where Xavier is like, Kurt, get over here so we can teleport into this building, and... Nightcrawler can't do it, and it's because Celine, she's like, you're not the only one with powers. I I like that little moment. I feel like all these X-Men films had, like, humorous moments, and this one, again, it's grunge. It's very drab, and so, yeah, anytime I could get a little chuckle, I'm enjoying it. I like this fight. Again, it feels so... X-Men 3, because we had the fight outside the house with Magneto's team, with Juggernaut and everybody fighting against the X-Men, including Beast, trying to get into the house where Jean is losing control of her powers. So we have all of this going on again, but I really do like the fight where it's Beast versus Cyclops and Magneto is throwing car doors really casually and pulling up subway cars through the cement. Why does he do that? He does it so he can block the door behind him and just be left the hell alone. Okay, for the life of me, I'm like, are they just calling back Ian McKellen's biggest fight scene from the first movie? Like, why the train? It just felt excessive with no (laughs) point. This is where the money went was to the train instead of the choppers. He lifted a bridge in the last stand. A a train, I guess, isn't as impressive. I'm underwhelmed. I mean, I get out of the scene is what's happened is that Jean has chosen no master anymore. She will take Magneto and crush his helmet and break it to pieces. Again, I'm like, oh, is, is this how Fastbender gets out of these films? Are they going to just crush his head? I thought Fastbender was dead in this scene. And later, I thought Charles was dead. I really thought they were going to replay the beats of X3. And it wouldn't have been a bad thing to do. But no, they're actually going to shy so far away. Nobody else is going to die in this movie except the bad guy. I guess we have Logan, so you can't have all the X-Men end here because that's still in continuity. More than that, I believe the whole point of this movie is that the power you have is not evil. I don't know what Phoenix power is or how it's being characterized, but I think what Kinberg is trying to say is that like the pen, it can be used for good or evil. If she did more killing, we wouldn't be able to forgive Dark Phoenix. Instead, they want to see her as powerful and probably benevolent at the end of this movie. So she's just going to not choose her masters. She's going to crush that wheelchair. She's going to crush that helmet and say, 
you guys are not my equal. I'm more powerful than you. But Xavier does get through to her and gets to the old Jean. And he's like, I knew you were in there somewhere. That's why I say there's evil Jean, because somewhere in there you can find the regular Jean. And regular Jean's like, I don't want this power. And Vox is, well, if I can't manipulate you, I'll take the power. Just hand it on over. But if she could handle the power, she would have done it light years ago. <laughs> yes, literally light years. Like, literally in space, they could have just gotten the ship in front of the storm. Yeah, I didn't buy this moment. That's when I rolled my eyes when you get this retcon of that opening space shuttle battle. And oh no, they were just out of sight and like lingering in the background. Like, just jump out and intercept that Phoenix Force. I'm still enjoying the scenes. Whoever the mime they got to do the broken feet going up the stairs and McAvoy lurching when we see the full body. And he's still built. He's obviously got his glass split muscles going underneath that suit. He is really large for Professor X. But I enjoy all of this, including that Cyclops is the one who stops the transference. We're about to give Vux the ultimate power in the galaxy. It's Cyclops who comes in and doesn't know what the hell's going on with his girlfriend, but blasts this other woman and... Gene passes out and then the scene stops there because of rewrites and suddenly a SWAT team comes in and they're all on a train. With mutant harnessing power collars. Yeah, they have those drugs to take their powers away. Like, this is the last stand. They notice that the SWAT team is called the MCU as well. I noticed that. It's mutant <laughs> control unit. I could not not think of Marvel Cinematic Universe as the enemy. That's a dig. Coming in to kill them all and bring them into their universe. That was pointed. <laughs> but just to put a fine point on yes this seems to be scott's greatest moment is that he saves his love in this instance i still have got to say i've never felt like this was the guy that was going to lead the x-men in all of these movies you've told me in the comic version he's the dude i've never ever gotten that cyclops mattered no ty sheridan has never been a great Cyclops. I don't like Ty Sheridan's Cyclops. I don't like Sophie Turner's Jean Grey. And the fact that they have this relationship together is kind of whatever. But it is honestly not living up to Fomka Jensen and James Marsden. <laughs> anyway, you're loving all of this. To me, it looks like a dozen guys in Lululemon tracksuits jumping on a train <laughs> and having some kind of ending that has no bearing on anything... Where are they going in the train? What does any of this... The internment camp. Oh, okay. So it's like Auschwitz. I mean, they don't say that, but that's how I take it. All right. Yeah, it's, I guess, getting back to the Auschwitz Holocaust imagery. We did see that prison in Deadpool 2. Maybe that's where they're headed. It feels like a compromise ending. I really feel like, however it tested poorly, the whole movie is not going to do well. Why not have the ending that it was meant to have? Okay, what they said was, I had assumed that the movie that came out, that the ending was aping, was going to be Captain Marvel, right? I mean, space yeah. aliens and mm -hmm. everything. But what Kinberg said is that it actually aped Civil War, where you had the big fight in the middle of all your heroes, and then it splits off. And so the way that that scene ends with Cyclops getting Professor X, with Cyclops and Professor X alone with Gene and Vux in space. Mm. Like maybe Vux went to her spaceship and Cyclops and Professor X went also. And then they said there's a brief moment, maybe two minutes, that was going to look like Captain Marvel. They also changed very much 
the fire look of Phoenix, and I think because of Captain Marvel. If you remember that Entertainment Weekly cover, she almost looked like the Human Torch. Mm-hmm. And now she's just got this basic purple energy thing going on. But there may have been a scene of Sophie Turner fighting a spaceship. Instead, we're going to just have a train heist climax it's good action, though. I mean, I like the scenes. There are moments that I like. It goes on a bit too long with people just crawling on that train. But yeah, when you get Magneto, and I just like when it goes over the top, and he just turns every gun in that train against Vux, and they're just shooting her. And I guess they can't be hurt, but sometimes they can buy guns. No, guns <laughs> definitely kill the aliens. You just have to have really high-powered bullets. She doesn't have high enough caliber, then. That's the problem. You gotta hit the brain, basically. If you blow off their head, it's enough. So none of those bullets are enough to blow off her head. But yeah, we see those Gatlin guns that just blow their heads off. Yeah, those 50 calibers. They just fall over and turn back into a gray alien missing half of their head. But nothing else really seems to kill them. The only thing I like here is, you've mentioned before, Nightcrawler, Kurt. He's the only character in the new version that feels like what was being done in the Brian Singer one. Like, what Alan Cumming was doing is what... Cody McPhee feels like he's doing, and when he teleports the one alien in front of the train, I thought that was kind of rewarding. Are we supposed to be happy? Because Nightcrawler has been a rescuer and a transporter. You know, Beast stole the plane, so Nightcrawler, take us to New York. You're a mode of transportation. But here, he friends a guard. A guard looked at him and said, my kid used to be a big fan. And when the aliens attack... Kurt's like, your kid was right about us. We can help you. And then that guard gets killed by a Dabari. Well, Nightcrawler has like this berserker rage. He had been staying out of it this whole time. He grits his teeth or actually shows his fangs. And he starts killing and killing. And when he teleports the one chick who can't die in front of the train, that snarl, that evil smile... It's like he went to the dark side. Am I supposed to be cheering? I was. I kind of feel bad for him. Well, no, I feel like they all kind of do that. I feel like Beast did that when he teamed up with Magneto and he goes full berserker Wolverine mode. He says he does what Mystique would have done and that he literally pins someone by putting a foot to their neck. I'm like, that was Mystique's move. was always kicking people in the neck and holding them against a wall. Meanwhile, anyone need a refill on your eyes? Storm's over here. (laughs) She is super powerful here. I guess Apocalypse, when he juiced her power, made her more powerful than Halle Berry. Because Halle Berry could shoot one bolt of lightning at Toad. Yeah, she had to roll those eyes back for a while Mm -hmm. to summon the powers. Here it is Emperor Palpatine with Sith Lightning. Oh my god, she's calling so much lightning from the sky, she's hitting 50 aliens at once. Not that lightning is hurting them at all, and she continues to blast them. Exactly my point. of like, I don't think she gets a moment. I think everyone else gets a moment. She does not. And we've got Jones on this train, Jones being the lieutenant. They don't really try to kill him. Magneto pushes him up against a wall. And finally, this is where Magneto and Storm get their moment. Storm pushes all of them into a train car, and then Magneto crushes it like an aluminum can, finally getting rid of the Jones guy. And he couldn't have done that without Storm. Storm's useful. (laughs) I guess she caused some wind. (laughs) Like, there are little exciting moments, and I like comic book movies. I like superhero movies, so I like these little moments. I talked about the guns with Magneto. There's fun moments. It goes on very long, and it's really weird. Like, this whole thing finally crashes, 
And at least in my theater, it seemed like those crickets were turned very loud in the mix. Like they're outside. I guess there's crickets. But it's weird that that's how you want to have your big final battle met with crickets. Like usually it's applause or explosions. Crickets, that's a bad thing. And why is Jean doing what she's doing? Like, I get that we need to have that moment where she and Charles sit down in a mental room and and hash it out. And again, she's come to the conclusion that she overreacted and that he lied to her out of love and she's going to protect her family. So she just makes the train fly off the tracks and spin. She does for her adopted family here what she didn't do for her biological family back in the car crash when she was a girl. She protects them. Yeah, she makes the force fields for everyone. I don't know why she had to spin the train cars upside down the way that her parents' car flipped upside down, but I think that's Kinberg driving home the metaphor. All right, I couldn't figure out dramatically what he was trying to do in this moment. I, it's Visually, it's striking, but that's what it is. She's saving her mother, essentially. Yeah, saving her family, giving them the protection she gave herself in the car crash. Why she couldn't just leave the train going? What's weird to me is when we see... Magneto crush that train car and throw it aside. There's no more aliens on the train. And I thought they were down to like one train car now, but it didn't look like that long of a train. But suddenly there's five train cars flying through the sky and aliens still aplenty. I wonder if they re-edited that scene a little bit to move it up because I thought they'd beaten all of the Dabari and now there's still a whole bunch of Dabari. They've got to give Dark Phoenix the end. And so she kills all those guys by spinning it around. And then she takes Vux up to space and does the Phoenix move. Gives her the power, what she most wanted. Yeah, it's the ending of Ang Lee's Hulk. And I thought that earlier when she started to hand over the power was the, you think you want this power? Take it all. I've rewatched Ang Lee's Hulk a couple times since we covered it. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I think it does go a little Akira here. She becomes the star child, I think. She disappears, but we still get that voiceover. Like, she still exists on some plane. Right. Yeah, it's a very quick wrap-up where Scott's hanging a new sign. It's the Jean Grey School for the Gifted now. Is the public going to send people there? I mean, like, knowing that her reputation was mostly as a killer, has it been restored in the public's eye? I don't know that anyone saw this train flip. Well, it's not really a school that normal kids go to. It is still for mutants, so maybe... Some of them see her as a hero. Okay, sure. And then Beast and Charles never patched it up. Beast still holds on to the idea that Charles killed his girlfriend and Beast now runs the school. We don't know that they didn't maybe leave on civil terms. I mean, something had to happen where Charles says, take the school. (laughs) There had to be a conversation where he gives them the keys There's legal papers, yes. I'm sure Harvey Weinstein said something to his employees when he was ushered out, but not much. I mean, the point is we're taking it from you. It's Gene's school now, and I'm running it, and there will be no more mistreatment of children. And Charles goes to France? I couldn't stop thinking of Michael Caine in The Dark Knight Rises. He goes to France at the end of that, too, and I guess that's just where you go when you're done being a superhero. (laughs) Sounds like a whole different series, doesn't it? They could do a whole retired-in-France superhero old man movie. He looks really upset and angry, though. Charles is really bitter about being in this cafe. He's like, s'il vous plaît, when they bring him his coffee, but he is sitting there alone, and he is just a grumpy old not-yet-Patrick Stewart. Yeah. 
Eight years he will be, though. Yeah, it's not leading into anything that we've known before, and it's not a future that begs sequels. I mean, if they wanted to bring an end to the series, I suppose seeing Eric and Charles playing chess again does that. What else is there to do? And he's going to take Charles to Genosha, and he says, you once gave me a home and a family, and I'll do the same for you now. I don't know that Charles will ever be a passive guy. He's going to backseat drive the ruling of Genosha and drive Eric nuts. The whole life is going to be a chess game. But it's a nice note to end on them, because honestly, Marjorie, when we left, was like, how come he doesn't end up with Rose Byrne? They kind of got together again in that third film. Couldn't you get him to retire with a happy ending? And I said... This bromance has always been more interesting than any romance for Xavier. Yeah, you're always waiting for that chess match. Since the first movie. I mean, when Magneto almost killed everybody, Xavier still showed up for that chess match. The two of them are soulmates. Maybe not in a romantic sense, but they need to be together. And so to me, this is a happy ending. And we pan up, and Jean didn't die. We saw her when she kills Vox. She kind of went 2001. It reminded me of Dave's with the glowy eyes when he became Space Baby in 2001. And she formed a phoenix. Well, that phoenix is still streaking through the sky as Sophie Turner is telling us Marvel's taking over. This is not the end of me or the X-Men. This is a new beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when Marvel reboots you in five years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is exactly what you say to uh, people when you walk in and take over their desk and their lives. That's Yeah, nothing is changing. Don't worry about it. And here's all your stuff in a box. <laughs> well, let's box it up. Jacob Stewart. I really don't know. We've had a very mixed conversation. Do you recommend Dark Phoenix? Jacob. You know, a 90s period piece with a woman with cosmic powers fighting shape-shifting aliens, and there's a man trying to hold her back. No, it's not Captain Marvel. I did not recommend that film. I'm on the side of a weak recommend for this one. Why? When there's so much overlap. And it really comes down to, I just like the grays here more. Look, Captain Marvel, that was a fun, yay, girl power, but it felt undeserved to me. This one, it struggles with that issues, with feminism, with males trying to control women. It Does it do it well? Does it do it as good as I want? Is this a five-star film? No, this is not X-Men First. It fumbles around with a lot of that. I just like that it's more nuanced and that, yeah, both extremes are kind of shown as not the ideal. Again, it kind of fumbles the ending where she's like, no, but I'm going to embrace my emotion and that makes me more powerful. I thought that's what you're going against with having the Phoenix Force taking you over. But I like that there's more nuance here and that it's not your typical what's become, you know, Marvel and superhero films. I don't know if you could separate the two, but there's just a lot more talking and debating. And I like that it's a change of pace here. Again, not a perfect film. It's a weaker recommend. And, you know, you don't always get a chess game. (laughs) These X-Men films tell us we're always getting chess games. This is probably more on the checker side, but I could still go with it because, again, I like the debate going on. I like the nuance. There's a couple of fun action scenes, so weak recommend. Stuart. You know, last year I finally came clean about where I had spent the majority of my Hollywood career, and it is at 20th Century Fox. I didn't want people to know that because I was criticizing a lot of their films, and that's just not a good idea to publicly damn the work of people you ultimately want to hire and promote you. But with 
me leaving Hollywood and certainly with the Disney buyout, I felt like, okay, I don't need to worry about that. But I did get the opportunity just a few months ago to go back and have a look-see on the Fox lot the very same week that Hope Hicks and Paul Ryan were taking over what's left of Fox and everyone else was becoming a Disney employee or being canned. I was there and it was an incredible black cloud. Everyone felt defeated. They were just sitting around. They were all doing their job, everything that they had done when I left them, but with no life, no passion. It was just waiting to be fired, waiting to die. And I have that same sensation watching Dark Phoenix. They know it's over. It just feels like nobody cared. They gave it little money, little consideration. They didn't even work to make it a satisfying capper. It just feels like, why try when we know everything we're going to be doing is undone by the new people coming in? Do you recommend that experience? Is it fun to watch your friends get shit canned? Not really. I mean, this movie advocates go with your emotions. Your emotions are what's important. And my emotion is I want to say recommend. My emotion is I like this series. I like the fact that it was Fox and not MCU. They took chances that MCU would never do. What I'm saying is for the franchise, it is a green arrow. But when I look at this movie, no, it's a mild red. There's nothing here that's very, very good. My face gets all veiny. My eyes glow red. When I think about what they're doing here, it makes me mad. It makes me feel like they ruined it. It does sound like you're going with emotion then. <laughs> you're very angry. Well, they didn't try. And even the Me Too stuff, I mean, which is not 90s. Again, they should be talking about the 1990s, but that they wanted to comment on that. It just feels like exploitation. They didn't follow through on that. They didn't follow through on anything. There's no good action. There's maybe a few moments here and there. I do think Michael Fast Spender is fun to watch, but ultimately this is a depressing conclusion and not the way I want to remember it. I want to remember the good years and the 90s and Dark Phoenix is not it. Me, I've lived with these X-Men movies for yeah 20 years. There have been highs and lows and my feelings about those first couple films definitely evolved. But yeah, if you want to look at Marvel in movies, it goes Blade to X-Men to Spider-Man to Iron Man. That is the evolution and what everybody at Marvel says brought about the current age of comic book movies. So X-Men's legacy, and a lot of people forget about Blade, so X-Men's legacy cannot be discounted. And so here we are at apparently what Kinberg says they knew would be the end even before the Disney buy. They knew when they were going into this, this was going to be the end end of X-Men movies as we know them. Like I said, just signed people for a one-movie contract this time. Now, New Mutants, Deadpool 3, Gambit, all these other things were being planned, but this was the last for the X-Men as it started, and the X-Men go out not with a bang, but with a whimper. I try to figure out where did it go wrong. Was it Kinberg's obsession with fixing part three? It feels that way. Because with the retconning... This is not a better blockbuster popcorn film than three. I'll give it that. No, no. yeah, I prefer Last Stand. It's a crazy thing to say, but I do. Yeah, I agree. Last Stand is a more fun movie, and it's got more to talk about with the mutant cure and everything. This is a better telling of the Phoenix Saga. But X3 is a better film. If you'd like the Phoenix Saga. And is it that... He was so obsessed with what happened with Brett Ratner and part three that he had to go back to this because 
honestly, the problem with X3, the way I see it, is probably Kenberg now. Because so many beats from X3 are repeated here. From the parents, to the childhood Jean Grey trauma, to lifting Professor X up. I thought at one point we were going to get Charles going, don't let it control you, just like Patrick Stewart did as he turned to dust. We have Jean Grey turning aliens to dust, just like she turned people to dust in part three. Yeah, a fight at her childhood home. There's so many callbacks to X3. I was thinking about the remake of Pet Cemetery, where we're like, we thought they were just adapting the book and taking it in a new direction. Why do they reference so much from that first Pet Cemetery film? And I feel like that is here. And as I've said, this is X-Men's second class. Sophie's Turner, Jean Grey, Ty Sheridan, Cyclops. There's just no attachment here. And I think you needed to have an attachment to Jean Grey for the Phoenix story to matter. I think it would be hard, not impossible, but hard to make a first X-Men movie, The Dark Phoenix Saga. We had two Famke Jensen films leading up to her turn as Dark Phoenix and setting it up with her death in part two. Here, Sophie Turner was one of the dark spots of Apocalypse to me, and she wasn't a huge part of that film. She was in quite a bit, but she was also completely overshadowed by Magneto and Charles and Mystique and Apocalypse and even Psylocke got a little bit more to do. So I have no attachment to her. But yet, honestly, all that aside, and the ham-handed Me Too stuff that just feels so poorly done, and I am pro Me Too, I am on that side, but if you're going to put it in a movie, you gotta do it the right way. You can't just spout off taglines and say that you're for the cause. You're actually hurting the cause because you're not doing it right. But when I was watching the film, I applaud the action. I think that we have two really good action scenes. The one where it's the X-Men versus the X-Men, and the one where it's the X-Men versus the Dubari on the train. I think both those scenes are pretty well done. I like what they do with Nightcrawler and his power here. Again, I don't know if I should cheer him going Sith-eyed Anakin at the end, but it's enjoyable action, even if I feel bad for the character making these choices. The space stuff was not ridiculous the way I kind of expected it to be. I wish they hadn't sidelined Quicksilver so much. I wonder if there was a shooting schedule issue and Evan Peters had to go do American Horror Story or something. But overall, this movie kept me guessing. I never expected Beast to turn on Charles. I never expected Beast would try to strangle Cyclops. I never expected Magneto would lead a peaceful commune. I like where it took the characters, and I enjoyed the time watching this movie. And I went back a second time because I wanted to be damn sure. But yeah, the second time it was actually a better watch than the first, knowing where things were going. Is this going to be in heavy rotation the way I do some of the other X-Men films? No. But I will watch this one again, whereas I have not watched Apocalypse again until just yesterday to prep for this review. So I'm going to eke it over the line and give it a weak recommend. And I don't think it's nostalgia. I just think this movie has enough enjoyable moments that if you like superhero movies, you could do far, far worse. This one entertained. For me, this is the worst of this 
iteration. I, I would rather watch Apocalypse than this. Okay, you're just counting the decades films, not Wolverine Origins. Yeah, it's hard to talk about because Deadpool is its own thing. And as far as the generation saga, the prequels, as it were, they got worse with each one in my mind. And this is the only one that I'm saying not recommend. Not a strong one, but you ask where it went wrong. That first one, first class, it was simple. It was about Charles debating Eric with Mystique in the middle. And then the second one was Charles debating Eric with Mystique at the middle and a lot of red meat thrown in with Wolverine. Because uh-huh. we got to have Wolverine, right? Uh-huh. And then they got off track with Apocalypse because the new characters weren't interesting and they were mucking up the dynamic and it just wasn't a well-shaped story. And here, yeah, it's just all gone. It's as dead as Mystique. The difference is this does have a lot of the flaws of Apocalypse including Sophie Turner not being a great actress. I've just, I never, Game of Thrones is what she's really known for. I didn't like her on that. She's the only person I really don't like on that. I don't like her in this series. I can say that the only of the new 80s kids that I liked was Quicksilver and Nightcrawler. Ditto. And in that order, Quicksilver 1, Nightcrawler 2. And Storm, Cyclops, Jean Grey. Making a Jean Grey film with this Jean Grey was a mistake. But... The thing with Apocalypse is it's so ponderous, boring, and stupid when Apocalypse is learning from television and all of that, that it hurts my eyes. I I roll so hard, and it's boring as hell. This one, I was never bored. That's the reason that one was a weak not recommend. This one's a weak recommend. The difference is pure entertainment value. If you cut a half hour out of Apocalypse, I might have recommended it weekly, too. I do feel like Fox got a lot of things wrong, and there's a lot that Disney can do to make MCU can do better than what has been done before. What I will suggest, the one thing I would like them not to do, because I feel like it's played out, is that you can't make X-Men underclass anymore. That was Brian Singer's conception, that this was minorities and you want to talk about... Well, that was the comics conception. They were going because, again, it was civil rights. And even in the 2000s, they made it about gay rights, uh, the metaphor. The weird thing is, in the MCU, like, superheroes are cool. So people with powers would be cool. So, So, yeah, how do you make them an underclass? Everyone wants a selfie with Storm. Yeah, no one wants to marginalize them. So they're going to have to frame it as a different kind of fight. And I think by taking it into space, if indeed that is where Marvel's universe is heading, that will take away that dynamic about how people on Earth feel about mutants. I do wonder how you even introduce mutants when they've always been around in the MCU. It's going to be weird that all of a sudden after Endgame, oh yeah, and there were all these mutants that had powers that could have helped out too. Maybe. Maybe something in the snap caused it. Yeah, that's what I'm guessing. I think there's ways to do it. I think Singer's vision in certain ways was very true to the 60s comic and some of the Claremont stuff with the World War II Magneto stuff. And I think just modernizing it, taking it out of the past and bringing it into the future is one way that they can really do that. As the comics go on, I mean, they keep changing stories. Punisher is too young now to have served in Vietnam, so he's an Iraq war veteran. And the same thing with Iron Man not being captured by the Vietnamese for the heart problem. So I think modernization And I think these movies shied away in so many ways from the comic bookiness. Singer tried to ground it, gave them the black leather outfits. I want one of these 90s 
they're not hoodies, but I like these jackets that they wore in this one. I want one. I actually really like the first class outfits. Yeah, the first class were great. Yeah, this is probably my second favorite uniform for them. I like the uniform, but why not go with a rogue who can fly and touches people intentionally in battle to steal their powers and to go with a Cyclops in blue spandex and finally get Wolverine in the yellow? The Marvel Cinematic Universe has proven they can make cool people in spandex. So I'd like to see them go that way just to differentiate themselves. If they try to keep it grounded and have a Wolverine that only wears white wife beater shirts, it's going to just be too much of a derivative. Are they going to make him short and with excessive body hair, though? Are they really going to make Wolverine not a sex symbol? Probably not. No way. No, that's why they're going to get like one of the Jonas Brothers or whoever the kids are into these days. Maybe not. Marvel has shown an uncanny knack of good casting. They don't want to make him old, though. They want him to stick around. They know Wolverine is what butters the bread for these X-Men films. Yeah, and maybe they won't do that, though. Maybe you try an X-Men without Wolverine when introducing them. What has been said, now that they can contractually talk about it, is... It's going to be at least five years before they even think about X-Men. Mm-hmm. Take some time off is a good idea. Well, and they got stuff planned out, I'm sure. Yeah, they got other stuff. Marvel's not hurting for franchise. Yeah, and I think five years is the reboot number if you kind of look at it. It's, is that what Spider-Man did? Spider-Man took five years off before Amazing Spider-Man. Hulk took five years off before Incredible Hulk. Now, some of that is rights negotiations, but it seems like we have a five-year memory when it comes to theatrical releases. What's interesting is rumor has it we're going to see Fantastic Four much sooner. Yeah. Oh, wow. That will be coming in three years, which yeah. is only like five or six since the really, really bad one. Rise of the Silver Surfer? No, that yeah. was much longer ago. <laughs> that was the best one in my mind, the last one. But Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I have, I have post-traumatic stress over that last Fantastic Four film. Okay. Just so bad. <laughs> But in the end, I just think they're going to do it very differently as they did with Spider-Man, as they've done with Hulk. And I think this is their best chance. They've lost Downey. They've lost Evans. I don't think Doctor Strange and Ant-Man have really kept up with the amount of popularity. They have Black Panther and they have Tom Holland. Captain Marvel made a ton of money. They got her. Yeah, they got Brie Larson. But I think X-Men could be the next real golden age of Marvel's cinematic universe. Before that, though, we'll get to the Japanese X-Men. At least in my mind, it was the only comic book that I read that was like the X-Men back when I read comic books. They made it as an anime in 1988. And if you're a patron this Friday, we're talking Akira. Never seen it. Knew of it. Heard of it. They a couple times talked about making a live action version of it, I've read. Yes, that's coming as well. Maybe we're a little premature. But it is the Japanese animated movie that really broke through first in America. And it was certainly my exposure to manga and that art form. We'll be talking about all of that, not just the movie this Friday. Yes. If you are a donor for our spring donation drive, there's no show this Friday. Akira is for the patrons of $10 or more on our patron campaign, where you get over 25 bonus movies. Akira is the latest. Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Willow, Galaxy Quest, The Warriors. So many movies we have now covered that we've been doing this patron campaign for two years. Who else is going to talk about Monster Truck and Apocalypse Now? I mean, that's <laughs> it's great that we can just bounce around like that. It's the best way for us to hit one-offs, truthfully. So it gives us an opportunity to review films like we haven't before. 
And you can get that with a donation of $10 or more per month at nowplayingpatron.com. But we'll be back next week as we continue our lead up to Toy Story 4 talking Toy Story 3. So two cartoon movies in a row, Akira and Toy Story. Will three men weep and talk about it on a film? One movie you're going to need Band-Aids, one movie you're going to need Kleenex. (laughs) So we will talk to you next week, bub. Today's attack was only our first salvo. Our war will rage. Your cities will not be safe. Your streets will not be safe. You will not be safe. And to my fellow mutants, I make you this offer. Join us or stay out of our way. Thank you for listening to the now playing X-Men Movie Retrospective Series, part of our Marvel Comics movie series. Told you if you came down this road, you would like what you found. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another movie review. The professor trusted you were smart enough to discover this on your own. He gives you more credit than I do. And in the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find reviews of other Marvel Comics films, such as the Avengers films, Spider-Man movies, and many more, as well as reviews of other series, such as Star Trek, Terminator, Predator, Philip K. Dick, and Tron. We also have individual movie reviews, such as Avatar, Inception, and Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com. Show's over. Show's never over for us. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Oh no, finish your tweet. There you go, hashtag it. Do you know what happens to a toad when it's struck by lightning? The same thing that happens to everything else. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. Do I look like a man who exaggerates? You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Don't you have any decency? Where's your sense of gratitude? Do you think I have needs? Do you think I'm just here to be your dream grid guru? I want out of here! I want to hit the big time! If you want even more Now Playing reviews, place your order now for the first Now Playing book, Underrated Movies We Recommend. Get reviews of 125 films our hosts love. You can order the book by clicking the banner at the top of our homepage. I'd say that you sound like an infomercial, but not a good one, like Slap Chop, more Shake Weighty. Now Playing's X-Men Retrospective series is edited by Arnie. They say you're the bad guy. Is that what they say? Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with the motion pictures reviewed or otherwise referred to herein. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review, and no infringement is intended. Apparently we have some issues with authorities. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. Oh, you get the point! Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of Venganza Media Incorporated and may not be used without the express written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2019, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Class dismissed.
the feed? Are we still live? All over the galaxy, and it destroyed the debar. The deb- I know I want to say the bar- debarge every time. <laughs> to the beat of the rhythm of the night. She's misdirecting some of it at Charles for being the one in charge, when in fact, she just doesn't want to be in the spotlight. And so, if I were Charles... Did you just make a Charles in charge reference? I mean, you could make that joke, but Scott Baio's not here, so it doesn't really... Scott Baio won't talk to me. He blocked me on Twitter. Well, there are worse things. To kill everyone else on Earth and repopulate it with DeBarge. (laughs) Which is just a terrible thought. Who's Johnny? We'd know where Johnny is, at least. (laughs) Honestly, not living up to Fomka Jensen and... Yeah, that uh, no-name blonde. Sonic guy, Sonic the Hedgehog. Um, the, uh, and I just Superman Sonic Returns. Uh, James Marsden. Oh, yeah. uh, and then that guard gets killed by uh, Dubai. Uh, Dubai? Yeah. Dabari. Mm-hmm. 